we got to figure out a way to make it so we just have a, like a one button thing where everything syncs up with one button. Mm. Is that possible one day? Maybe. Maybe. We're live. Right now we're live? Live, live. Cool. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Welcome. Thanks for coming, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for having me. Sam Harris is going to be with us, but he flaked out last minute. Yep. He's a busy man. Yeah, he's a busy man. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to talk to you about a bunch of things, but one of the big ones is this idea of effective altruism. Mm -hmm. And this is something that you really promote to the point where, I don't know if this is true, but I read this about you, that everything that you make over $36,000 a year, you donate? Yeah, that's right. So, wow. Yeah, so everything um, above, technically it's everything above 20,000 pounds from 2009 Oxford. So in, just for inflation, cost of living changes and stuff. But that's about $36,000. So you've just sort of decided that, which is, by the way, the 1% for the whole world. Yeah, not quite. Somewhere. About 2%. Yeah, I'll be in the top. Still be in the top 2%, even despite... I thought it was 34000 I think 34000 puts you in the top 1%. I think it's $55,000. Oh, has it changed? 1%. Maybe since Trump's been in office. It's yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, but it's a... It's, you know, what you're doing is, uh, if that's really the case, that's a, that's a very charitable thing. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, it's most of my income over the course of my life. Like, especially as an academic, you're not going to earn tons, though um, since Effective Altruism blew up, you end up getting things like speaking fees and, you know, right. and I give all that away as well. Wow. So it's going to end up probably being like the large majority of income over the course of my life. Do you ever like want to buy something and be like, shit, if I wasn't so goddamn generous, I'd be able to get this? You know, I never do. I really? like basically never think that. Yeah. I think like this, like, I feel like in contemporary society, we just get bombarded with marketing stuff all mm -hmm. the time saying like, oh, you really need this thing if you're going to have a good life. And I think like in almost every case, that's just not true. I think the psychological evidence just shows that once you're above a certain level of income, um, additional money just has a very small impact on your happiness. And in my own case, like the things that make me happy are like being surrounded by friends. That's free. Gym membership. That's like $40 a month or something. It's not very much. I can afford that. Um, being able to work and, you know, what I really am passionate about, and I already have that. So my life is just so good in so many ways. And I feel like there's so much of a focus on money and how money is the key to happiness. And it's just, I think it's just all bullshit, basically. Well, it's definitely some bullshit in it. And I, I see that a lot in my neighborhood because I live where white people go to breed. <laughs> and they, they, they go to breed and they, they sit down and they just talk about things. They talk about Range Rovers yeah, yeah. and certain watches and certain purses and shoes. And, yeah. well, and it becomes this constant. The amazing thing is just how you adapt. Mm -hmm. So it's called the hedonic treadmill. The richer you are, the richer you need to be. Oh, yeah. So I was once um, part of a conversation. Um, I was going to give a talk and um, I was going to like a family and I was on the kind of on a private jet, in fact. And the conversation was discussion of different private jets and which private jets are better than so on. This other person has this really nice private jet. And it just means that, like, at no stage do you ever lose the, like, oh, I could just have this nicer thing. No, because you can get to the point where you want a jumbo jet, like one of those Qantas Airbuses and yeah, deck Air that out One's like a house. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm sure that one of those Richard Branson-type characters probably has something like that. Yeah, that's totally right. Well, it's it seems to get to this, you, you hit this critical mass stage where you you know like these billionaire characters where they start buying hundred million dollar yachts mm -hmm. and four hundred million dollar yachts and what is the most expensive yacht i believe 
it's a half a billion dollars or more. That's incredible, yeah. Yeah. And you need to have a staff to oh, yeah. take care of it the whole time. And if it ever, the thing is, I think if I had a yacht, that would make my life worse. Because now it? I'd be stressing about this yacht, like yeah. what if it gets damaged, like I feel bad that I'm not using it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. Unless, well, I guess not, though, because if you kind of, look at this. Oh, oh nice. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's a billion? billion dollars on a yacht. The Streets of Monaco is what it's called, and it is one billion dollars. Go to that thing. <gasps> That's it? Wow. Oh my god, it's a, it's a neighborhood. I think... On <laughs> it's a floating neighborhood. I think on all of these things, you should replace the cost with how many bed nets you could buy um, for children in sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, and, uh, well, that's just ridiculous. Hold on, go up one... Did one say 1.2 billion? Scroll up. Yeah, estimated. Estimated price. Oh my god, the eclipse. Oh, 450 million to 1.2 billion. That's like when you go to get it made and you go like, how much is it going to cost me? And yeah. like between 450 million and 1.2 billion, you're like, ah, you know, normal money. Yeah, yeah. Normal pocket, shit. Pocket change. That is fucking insane. Look at that goddamn thing. I mean, that it's the re Oh, it's a replica. Of the Monaco Grand Prix track. Oh my god, that's insane. Wow. So you can drive around on your yacht at a ridiculous rate of speed. So this guy probably has like a Ferrari that can all over the surface of his crazy yacht. Okay, but he's got a fake beach. But it hasn't been sold yet. Oh, so it it's hasn't? not actually owned yet, I don't think mm. so. Oh, okay. It's gonna be interesting who buys that. They're gonna get a lot of attention. Well, there are enough people. There's there's a bunch of those people. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know how many. It's 1.2 billion. That's probably, there's only a couple of thousand people in the world who are worth that much. Really? Yeah. Even how if many, they're willing to sink their whole fortune. How many billionaires do you think there are worldwide? Let's three, guess. Three and a half thousand billionaires. Three and a half thousand? Yeah. Is it, you're, you sound very confident. I think it's about that, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a large number. That is kind of crazy. Three and a half thousand people that have more than 1,000 million dollars. Yeah. Whew. And there's old Will McCaskill. I know. 35,000, cuts it off. Yeah, but then half that, 1,800. 1,800, 1800 people? Yeah. Oh, they're good. billionaires? Yep. Well, oh, you're I'm happy. Glad we've got, well, no, I'm just happy we've got a fact checker on there. Oh. <laughs> correct all yeah. the false statistics. Well, that's a lot of money, man. Yeah. But it is one of those weird things where I do not think that money equates to happiness. One of the things that money does do is it alleviates the stress of bills. But mm -hmm. a lot of those stress of bills can be alleviated by not buying as many things, right? Like a lot of the stress of bills that people have is sort of self-imposed stress. Like you get a mortgage for a very large house, mm -hmm. you have car payments, you have all these different things that you're paying for. So that kind of money stress that some people put themselves under mm -hmm. is actually not really necessary, right? Yeah, so absolutely. If, so if you broke it down to what do you actually need, yeah. just need a nice place to live where it's not crime-ridden and it's safe. Mm -hmm. You need a bed. What else do you yeah. need? Food? Yeah, you need food, exercise, obviously. Are you one of those no-TV dudes? Do you have a no, TV? I, well, I watch you know Netflix, HBO. Oh, okay, all right. Just finished Veep, um, which I love. Is it good? Yeah, it gets really? better. The first seasons aren't so good, but then oh, it gets really good. I'm, I don't acting, have that kind of patience for not amazing. so good seasons. Oh yeah, I just get addicted. Even if I watch something and I think it's awful, I still just I will get addicted right and away I have to watch all of it. <laughs> yeah, I have like the most compulsive personality. Have you seen House of Cards? I've not seen. I deliberately not started oh, House of Cards. Oh, that's a good for show. That yeah, that's a good show. Yeah. Like I'm deep Game into of, that. Yeah, like Game of Thrones makes my life worse 
I like hate it. Really? I think it's amazing television, but I find it just so distressing. Because it's so but good? I still have to watch it all the time. Why yeah. do you find it distressing? Just like, you know. The violence? Yeah, the violence, people's getting their heads popped and stuff. Mm. Oh, that just, one with the mountain? Yeah, that's yeah. the one that really stays with me. Woo! That's rough. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, it gives me a lot of anxiety because I know there's only two seasons left. Mm. And the next season, this one coming up, is only seven episodes, and the final season is only six. Oh, I'm so happy about that. It's like. It's not know, making me happy, Will. I'm not very happy about that at all. It's like someone saying they're going to stop selling heroin or something. I'm like, Finally, <laughs> and then I'm you're like, well, yeah. I'm going to have to get a hooked on Oxycontins then. <laughs> That's what I feel. It's just, I just, I'm going to have to watch the whole season all over again or the whole uh, series. Um, so you have a television. You have a computer, I'm sure. Yeah, right? of course. Have a computer. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I like move around a ton. So I normally, like I don't have a house, but it wouldn't be convenient to have a house because I'm traveling so much. So you rent um, an apartment or something? Yeah, I rent an apartment. You um, live in England? I live in Oxford most of the time. I spend mm -hmm. a, quite a chunk of my time out in the Bay Area. Um, like, significant part of our staff and the nonprofits out there. I've got lots of contacts, sister organizations out there. So most of your time, you it seems like you're spending working for charitable organizations or Yeah, so I'm either, I have kind of three hats. So one is an academic, so I'm a professor at Oxford. Um, second is this kind of more public figure where I'm talking about these ideas through books or on this podcast and so on. And then third is I run a nonprofit called the Center for Effective Altruism, which is more about like finding the best charities, the ones that are doing the most good, going to help um, other people the most, and trying to promote them and try and get people to give more and to give more effectively. Yeah, we've gone over ineffective charities, or mm -hmm. I shouldn't say ineffective, but charities that are the way they're structured, when you look at how much money is actually going towards the charity itself mm -hmm. and how much is going towards the structure of the organization, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think, so that's normally the focus of ineffective charities is on like, yeah, how much is spent on overheads. Right. But I actually think that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what's the charity actually doing? Like what's the actual program? So one charity, for example, that I'm sure like you'll find funny is a charity called Homeopaths Without Borders. And it goes to Haiti in particular and distributes like homeopathic remedies. Um, you know, which don't work. They don't provide any health benefit. And even if it had a 0% overhead cost, so apps like spent nothing, everyone was volunteers, it would still be bad charity. You still shouldn't be giving to that charity. Right. Whereas That's a hilarious be, one. Yeah. I didn't know that that one existed. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of small, but... I would imagine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thankfully. Homeopaths without borders. Jeez. God. Yeah. But then wow. there's some super effective charities like... You know, a program that's, you know, saving a life with every three and a half thousand dollars, like the Against Malaria Foundation, mm. even if they were spending a bunch on, um, you know, investigating what the best areas to focus on or like paying their staff more. If what you should just care about is how much money you're putting in and what you're getting as an outcome. Right. Well, I think it's impossible for everyone to it's impossible for you to give ten dollars and all ten dollars is going to go directly to the charity because there's got to yeah, be course. overhead there's got to be infrastructure there's got to be a bunch of people working there rent it's, 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 it's there's costs but the question is like at what point does it become kind of a scam because mm -hmm. there are most certainly some organizations that appear to be charitable organizations but are really kind of a scam yeah there's definitely some so like the kids wish network for example kind of like the Make-A-Wish Foundation, similar idea. And they spent 99% of their budget on fundraising. So they were just like this kind of um, charitable Ponzi scheme, basically. So they, so they spent all their money on fundraising itself. Yeah, to then invest in more fundraising. 
and one percent somehow or another gets out there. Yeah, and what is like that? Maybe it's not as high as ninety nine percent, but it's about ninety percent. Something crazy. So what? Like, what does that money get to? Like, what do they do with the actual money itself? And then the idea behind that was um, granting wishes for sick children. Mm. Um, so, uh, do you remember the San Francisco thing with Bat Kid? It was like a bit like there was a big event, lots of publicity around it. This Bat Kid, a child that had some strange disorder. Yeah. So um, the child. Um, I don't know the details. I think the child had leukemia. Their wish was that they wanted to be Batman for the day. Oh, okay. This is a different thing. Yeah, okay, cool. So they, like, the Make-A-Wish Foundation set up this, um, you know, amazing story where they got to kind of drive in a Batmobile and, like, Mm -hmm. have this fantastic day where they're basically Batman for the day. Kids Wish Network is doing basically the same thing. They find seriously sick kids, often terminally ill kids, and say, what one thing would you want and we'll make it happen. Mm. Um, But I think the... But there is a lot of focus on, like, particularly bad charities. You know, the ones that are just really corrupt or completely dysfunctional. But I think that's not actually the most important message. What's most important is just even among the charities that are kind of good, even the ones that are making a difference, there's still a vast difference in the impact that you have, difference of hundreds or thousands of times between the charities that are merely good and the ones that are really the very best. And that's primarily dependent on what program are they focusing on. Hmm. So what is there any charity that people should avoid spending their money on? Like are, are there mm-hmm. are there charities that you feel like are just so ridiculously ineffective? Like Yeah, I mean like the ones we mentioned of Kids Wish Network right. or Homeopaths Without Borders. Um The Homeopaths think, Without Borders just is ridiculous. It's yeah, like yeah. voodoo on parade. <laughs> just stop. Yeah, I mean there's another one I can't remember it, but does um uh Astrology Without Limits. Astrology Without Limits. No, it does um <laughs> Dolphin therapy for autistic children, which um, has no evidence of working, um, but does actually just have some like risk of the children drowning. Oh, so Jesus again, it's, it's like, yeah. So you can like cherry pick these examples, but the thing is that these are just like not really representative. In general, I think charity is doing good, um, but the question is just like in the same way as if you're buying a product for yourself, you don't just want to get like you know, a laptop, as long as it works. You want to find, like, what's the best laptop I can get with my money? Right. Or if you're investing, you want to not just get, like, an okay return. You want to see, well, what's the best return I can get? Right. So in that sense, I think, like, the number of charities that you think are just, yeah, this is literally competing for being the most effective charity in the world, that's actually very small. So GiveWell, for example, is an evaluator, looks at all sorts of different global health and global development charities. And its list of charities that's like, yeah, this is just super good. You should really be donating to them. It's only seven charities long at the moment. Wow. And that's up from last year when it was only four charities long. Wow. Seven charities out of how, I mean, what is the overall total of active charities? It's got to be into the I mean, thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Hun- yeah. yeah, I'm sure. What got you involved in this? So you're a young guy. Mm-hmm. You seem like you should be playing video games and you know, spent, skateboarding or something? I spent a lot of my teenage years playing video games. Yeah? Um, yeah. It was, again, compulsive personality. It was yeah. bad. I need to ban myself from doing it. So your compulsive personality is now going towards good things. It went, yeah. I managed, the key was managing my life so that the things I get really focused on, addicted, um, addicted to, were good things rather than bad. Um, so, yeah, it all started back in, so I was back in high school, um, kind of undergraduate, of being very convinced by the arguments of this philosopher, Peter Singer. Oh, I know Peter Singer. He's like a radical animal rights activist as well, right? Yeah, he has a few things. Um, And he had this argument, which is that, you know, the way I tell the story is, imagine um, someone walks, is walking past a shallow pond, 
and they see a child drowning in that shallow pond. And they could run in and they could save the child, but they're wearing a really nice suit, a suit that costs like $3,000. And so they say, no, um, I'm not going to save that child. I'm just going to walk by and let it drown because I don't want to lose the cost of this suit. I normally say, look, in moral philosophy, we have a technical term for people like that. They're called assholes. <laughs> um, and uh, the, this is how I convey it in my seminars. Um, and obviously, we all agree, like, yeah, come on. If it's just you could clearly save this child that's right in front of you, you, you ought to do that. The cost of $3,000 does not count. Um, but then what Peter Singer's insight is, he says, well, what's the difference between that child that's right there in front of you and that child that's in sub-Saharan Africa who you could save. You'll never meet them for sure. Um, but you could still save their life with just a few thousand dollars if you donate it to a really effective nonprofit. And he considers all the different ways in which these cases might be disanalogous, but decides ultimately, like, no, there's actually just no morally relevant difference. Um, and so, yeah, we do just have an obligation to give away at least a very significant proportion of our income. And... I was really convinced by this kind of on an intellectual level for many years, but I never really did anything about it. Uh, and not until I went to Oxford to do a postgraduate degree in philosophy. And in the summer between then, I needed some money. I worked as a fundraiser for Care International, a global development charity. So I was one of those annoying people in the street who would kind of pest, like try and get in your way and then ask you to donate $10 a month. And it meant that all day, every day, I was talking about, like, look, this is the conditions of people in extreme poverty. We can do so much to help people at such little cost to ourselves. You know, why are we not doing this? And I was just over and over again kind of getting these apathetic responses. And I was just getting so frustrated because I just thought, look, these people are just not living up to their own values. People clearly do care, but there's some sort of block going on. And then I thought, well, I'm going to do philosophy. And at the time, I was planning to do like philosophy of language, logic, very esoteric stuff. And so I thought, well, I'm not living up to my own values. Um, I should really try and make a change. And so I went to Oxford, and I started asking a whole bunch of different kind of academics, well, what's, what's the impact of your work? What kind of a difference have you made? And normally, they were like, I'm not really in it to make an impact. I'm just kind of interested in these ideas. And that was pretty disheartening. But I kept persisting until I met another postgraduate student called Toby Ord. And he just blew me away because he had also been convinced by these ideas, but he'd gone one step further. And he'd said, yep, I've made a commitment to give away almost all of my income over the course of my life, about a million pounds. At the time, he was living on 9,000 pounds, saving 2,000 pounds and donating 2,000 pounds. So he was like really hardcore. But the thing, as well as like actually taking these ideas and putting them into practice, what really blew me away was just how positive he was. And he was, it was not that he was kind of wearing his hair shirt, flagellating. Instead, he was saying, look, this is an amazing way to live. We have this amazing opportunity to do a huge amount of good, to help so many other people, thousands of people, what's actually a very low cost to ourselves. And me having that one person um, who also kind of shared my worldview, shared my um, ambitions, just meant kind of gave that little psychological block, um, was lifted. And it meant that I was like, okay, cool, I'm on board. First, I kind of committed 10%. Then I was like, no, actually, I think I can do this further pledge. Um, and then that meant I had this question of, well, I'm planning to give away like a million pounds over the course of my life. Where should that money go? You know, I want to make sure it has as big an impact as possible. And that meant I started digging into, well, 
how can we compare between different charities? I found there was a ton of work from health and development economics that could help us to answer this. And what began as this kind of side project between these two, you know, Ivory Tower academics, me and Toby, we found that loads of people just were really um, taken by this idea, both of giving more, but in particular of giving more effectively. And over time, this kind of global movement called effective altruism started to form around these ideas and started to broaden in a couple of ways. So one is that it broadened away from just charitable donations to also thinking about, well, what should I think about with respect to my personal consumption? What should I think about with respect to my career? If I'm really aiming to do as much good as possible, what should I do? And then secondly, also starting to think about cause areas other than just global poverty as well. And it tends to be the case that within the community at the moment, the cause areas that people think are the very most pressing are global health and development still for sure, but then also factory farming, um, where, again, there's just such a vast amount of suffering, which is completely unnecessary. And then also preservation of the long-run future of humanity and worrying about risks of um, you know, global catastrophe, things that may be fairly unlikely but would be very, very bad um, if they did happen, especially relating to new technology like um, you know, no novel pathogens, sort of viruses you could design in a lab and so on. Well, you're also very concerned with AI as well, right? Artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, I think, in this category of, if you look at the history of um, human progress, technological change just creates these huge step changes in just how humanity progresses. So it was only 12 years um, in 1933 to then 1945 between Leo Zillard first coming up with the idea of the nuclear chain reaction. And that was just a purely conceptual idea on a bit of paper. 12 years from that to then the deployment of the first nuclear bomb. And think how radical a change that is, having suddenly being in the nuclear age. That was only 12 years. Yeah, and, we went over yeah. the, the invention of the airplane to dropping an atomic bomb out mm -hmm. of the airplane. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was 50 years, right? Yeah. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 years? Yeah, isn't that... It take a few? Yeah, so technological progress can suddenly go in these huge leaps. That we're not prepared for. That we're often very not prepared for. And I think artificial intelligence is in this category where we're really making radical progress in, in AI, especially over the last five years. Um, it's really one of the fastest um, developing technologies, I think, and yet has huge potential in so many different ways. Um, and as with any new technology, huge positive potential. Really, if you get AI right, you can solve almost any other problem, but also potential risks as well, um, where there's a risk that might be more familiar, um, you know, worries about automation, unemployment, um, worries about autonomous weapons, which I think should be taken seriously. And then also just worries about, well, what if we really do manage to make human-level artificial intelligence? It's very good arguments that, that would then quickly move to superhuman-level artificial intelligence. And what then? Um, are we now in a situation like the Neanderthals versus <coughs> Homo sapiens, where we've suddenly created this um, intelligence that is greater than our own? Are we able to control that? Are we able to ensure that, that transition um, is positive rather than negative? Have you ever considered the possibility when you look at uh, all the impoverished people in the world, all the cruelty, all the people that were, are so just concerned with material possessions and shallow thinking and mm -hmm. war and uh, just the evil that men do? Is it possible that 
we're sort of an outdated concept that mm-hmm. what we are as these biological organisms that are still slaves to the whole Darwinian evolutionary survival of the fittest natural selection sort of paradigm that we've operated under for all these many thousands and hundreds of thousands of years as humans is it possible that we're giving birth to the next thing that just like we don't long for the days when we used to be monkeys throwing Mm -hmm. shit at each other from the trees one day we will be something different, whether it will be a combination of us and these uh, machines or whether we're going to augment our own intelligence with some sort of artificial, mm-hmm. m- whether it's a, some sort of an exo brain or something that's mm-hmm. going to take us to that. Or it's going to be simply that we create artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence no longer has use for us because we're illogical. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes the new life form. Yeah. And then we're, we're law hide in the cave somewhere hoping the terminators don't get us yeah i mean i think like over the long term i mean with all of these things the question of kind of timelines is very hard and sometimes people want to reject this sort of discussion because oh this is so far in the future whereas i think like if something's sufficiently important we should be talking about it even if maybe it's you know decades or generations hence it might not be right i mean it might not be that far away but who knows like with the atomic bomb that was hugely fast progress, um, just, you know, 12 years. So we want to be prepared. Um, but then as for like, yeah, is it going to be Homo sapiens around for the next, you know, in a thousand years time? I think that would just be extremely unlikely. That and will be around? You think we're not going to be around anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think if intelligent creatures are still around, it's going to be some in a thousand years time, it's going to be something that's not Homo sapiens. Like you said, there's kind of three... Um, Or it's like not what we would consider kind of typical humans now. Well, we're obviously severely flawed, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we, like, if you ask people, if you ask the average person, do you think that in your lifetime you can imagine a world without war? Mm -hmm. Most people say no. Mm -hmm. Like the vast majority of people say no. A a world without crime, a world without violence, a world without theft. Most people say no. Mm -hmm. That's, that just shows you how inherently flawed most people view the human species. You know, we know that we can do it in small groups. Mm-hmm. You know, like if the three of us were on an island, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be stealing from each other and murdering each other, right? Yep, just yep. a few of us. But when you get to large-scale humanity, it becomes very easy to disassociate or create this diffusion of responsibility where there's, you know, enough people so you don't really value them as much and you're allowed to get away with some pretty heinous stuff, especially mm-hmm. when you consider drone warfare, mm-hmm. things that we're able to do long distance where we're not seeing the person that we're having the effect on. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a very flawed thing, the human species. Um, wouldn't it be better if something better came along? I mean, I think there's, yeah. Um, sort of. Yeah, I think there's not a case for you I and mean, I, though. Not, well... We'd be obsolete. Yeah, I mean, well, we're, we're going to be obsolete in 100 years anyway. I mean, um, as in, we'll be dead. Right. So the question is just, um, will our kind of, you know, generations hence, will, you know, it's not the question is not really about us. It's about our grandchildren. Let's well, say. it really forces the idea to be considered, like, what is valuable mm-hmm. about life? Like, is it the experience? Is it happiness? Is it shared fun is mm-hmm. it love like what is what's valuable about being a person yeah. and how much of that is going to change if we're made out of something that people have created mm-hmm. or 
or maybe we're made out of something artificial intelligence has created because mm -hmm. we've created something that's far superior to us. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I have a view on this, as you might expect. Where yeah. I mean, in my view, um, the thing that's valuable and the only thing that's valuable ultimately is conscious experience. Um, so that's good, like right. good conscious experiences, happy jo happiness, joy, and so on. That's positive. That's good for the world. Um, negative conscious experiences, suffering, pain, distress, those are bad for the world. And so that's why, you know, it's a good thing for me to do some service to you to benefit you, but I can't do anything good to benefit this bottle of water. Right. Um, and so then the key question in terms of what should we think about, supposing it is the case that, you know, a thousand years time, it's now um, synthetic life, it's artificial intelligence or something that's... Uh, um, the pe like that are in charge and there are no longer any humans, would this be good or bad? The question for me is, you know, are they having conscious experiences and are those conscious experiences good or bad? So that's it. Just conscious experience. Yeah. So it's that a controversial. Seems so selfish. It's a controversial view. Um, there's a thought experiment which is often used to challenge this view. Um, do you want to hear that? Yes. So it's called the experience machine. Ooh. And the idea is supposing that tomorrow you could plug into this machine. It's like the most amazing VR you could ever have. And in this machine, you will live for, let's say you'll live for 200 years and you'll be in the most amazing bliss. You'll have the most amazing experiences of, you know, and your experiences will involve incredible relationships, incredible creative achievement and so on. Um, and it'll just be like the perfect life that you could live experientially for the next 200 years. And the question is, insofar as you are self-interested, so put aside considerations you might have about wanting to make the world a better place, but just insofar as you care about yourself, would you plug into this thing? Bearing in mind that in a certain sense, all of these experiences are gonna be fake. You're gonna have experiences of having amazing friendships, writing great works of art, and great works of art and so on, but they're, they're not gonna be real. It's just sensory um, <coughs> inputs provided by a computer. Right. So the question is, would you, or ought you, insofar as you're self-interested, um, plug into this machine? What would, you, what would you answer? That's a very good question. I might already be plugged into it, right? I mean, you, oh, so this is, this is a great question. Right. And I think it's a good argument against is the question, well, supposing you were already plugged in, would you unplug? Supposing I told you that actually you're a banker than Monaco and... Fuck Monaco. I, this, <laughs> I'm not interested in that. No, I want to stay right here. Yeah. So can I stay plugged in, please? Do I have to pay more? What yeah. do I have to do? You would have to do nothing. But <coughs> it's interesting then if people think. <clears throat> so most people, and it seemed like maybe yourself, would intuitively you'd say, no, I wouldn't plug into this machine. I don't know if I would say that. I would okay. have to really deeply consider it because right now it's just so, it's so abstract, this mm -hmm. idea that that could be possible. Mm -hmm. It's so, it's, it's fantasy. We're, we're having fun. But when you talk to the leading minds when it comes to virtual reality or artificial reality or simulation theory, you know, when they start talking about mm -hmm. what will be possible one day, they're going to, without a doubt, within 100 years or 500 years or whatever the number is, they're going to be able to create an artificial reality that's indiscernible from this reality. You're, you're going to be able to feel mm -hmm, things. Mm -hmm. There's going to be emotions that come to you. You're mm -hmm. going, they're going to be able to recreate every single aspect of an everyday life. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of time. I mean, they're really close now. And not, not really close in terms of 
like they don't give you emotions and they don't give you feeling. But if you put on an HTC Vive and go mm-hmm. through some of those virtual reality games, I mean, it's bizarre how yeah. real it feels. Yeah, yeah. And when you go back to like playing Pong, did you ever play Pong? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's such a weird thing that that happened inside of our when I was a kid pong came along and we were blown mm-hmm. away yep, we yep. couldn't believe that we could actually do something on the television and you could see it move mm-hmm. it was so fantastic and if you gave that to one of my kids they'd spit on it mm-hmm. they'd be like what kind of piece of shit video game is this like <laughs> they would think it's just so ridiculous but to me at the time it was amazing you go from that to one of these HTC Vive games, which has all taken place within a, my lifetime, mm-hmm. and you go, well, a lifetime from now, if you follow the exponential increase in the mm-hmm. ability, the technological innovation, it's going to be spectacular. Yep. I mean, it's going to yep, be. Absolutely. So when that does happen, how will you be able to know? If it's indiscernible, how will you know if you're in it? And how do you know if you're not in it right now? That's yeah. the real question, right? Yeah. I mean, there are actually some arguments for thinking... You know, this is Nick Boston, a colleague of mine, his simulation argument for thinking we are in a simulation yes. right now. In fact, it's very likely that we should be. Yeah. Um, that Do you argument, buy that? Um, I actually, I'm kind of agnostic. I think you should take the the hypothesis seriously. Um, but I think the the argument doesn't quite go through for... What's attractive and what's reasons. not attractive about that theory to you? Okay, his, so, his version of it. Yeah, so the argument is that... Um, Frame it, it if you could, like his yeah, version yeah, of yeah. it. Yeah, so his argument um, is that in the future, supposing we believe that um, the human race doesn't go extinct, um, or post-humans don't go extinct over the next thousand, few thousand years, and secondly, that the people in the future have an interest in um, recreating their past, just for kind of historical interest or for learning, they're going to be interested in running because they're now going to have huge, amazing computer power. They're going to be able to create simulations of the past. That um, they're going to have some interest in running simulations of the past. Well, the number of if that is true, then the number of simulations that uh, these future people are going to be running will vastly outnumber the number of actual um, timelines, the kind of base universe, as it were. So, for the one real universe where history kind of unfolds, there's also, let's call it, you know, 10,000 simulations of that universe. And if that's true, then it's the case that, well, given that I'm just, you know, these things really are indiscernible for the people who are inside them, it's overwhelmingly likely, just in the base rate, that I'm going to be in a simulation rather than um, in the real world. And what Nick Bostrom says, actually, is not that we definitely are in a simulation, but he just points out the conflict between these three kind of beliefs that we would seem to hold. One is that we're not going to go extinct in the near future. Two is that, you know, people in the future will have some interest in simulating the past. And thirdly, that we're not living in a simulation. And he himself gives, you know, a reasonable degree of belief. Maybe he thinks it's like 10% likely, 15% likely that we're in a simulation. Other people who understand the argument vary a bit more, but I think, you know, it's something you should at least be taking seriously. Um, The reason I reject it is kind of um, uh, even weirder, I think, (laughs) or it's somewhat technical. Um, But the basic thought is just that um, according to, like, the best guesses from cosmologists, we're actually in an infinite universe. The universe is infinitely big. 
Now, we can't affect an infinitely big universe. We're restricted by the speed of light to what we can affect and to what we can see. Um, but the best idea, according to the best theory we have, um, universe just kind of keeps on going. But if so, then there's already like an infinite number of um, observers of people kind of in that um, bottom universe. And that means that you've now got kind of an infinite number of people kind of experiencing things. And then you've got the simulations and you've got like 10,000 uh, simulations. But you can't say there's 10,000 times as many simulated beings as there are real beings because there's already an infinite number of real beings. Um, <laughs> you're looking so good. Uh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Keep going. Um, but that means if you've got so the key of the um, of Bostrom's argument was that you've got ten thousand times as many simulated beings as you have real, like non-simulated beings. And but so the problem be, is, is an infinite number of real beings because the universe is infinite. Yeah, that's right. And so if you've already got an infinite number of real beings, the fact that you've got ten thousand times infinite—that's still infinite. Right. And you can't. It's kind of a case where, like, our best methods of assigning degrees of belief to things kind of run out. If you think it's, you know, there's an infinite number of uh, simulated beings, an infinite number of real beings, then what's the chance of you being one or the other? I mean, I'd, like, we don't actually have the, like, tools to be able to answer that. Neil deGrasse Tyson was trying to explain this to me a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. That there are infinities that are bigger than other infinities. Yeah, so that's also the case, but... Yeah, that was like broke my brain again. Yeah. So the number, but the key we're all talking about the lowest, what's called cardinality, the smallest infinity, mm -hmm. um, which is the size of the infinity of all the integers, one, two, three, four, right. counting numbers. And if you take that size of infinity and multiply it by ten thousand, let's say, you just get the same number, which is infinity. Right. Um, and then what Neil was saying was, yeah, there are these even bigger levels of infinity. So if you look at not just all the counting numbers, but all of the numbers you can make fractions out of, a half, a quarter, an eighth, and so on, that's a bigger, that's just more numbers than the infinity of the counting numbers. I've and spent a lot of time trying to understand why human beings are so obsessed with innovation, why mm -hmm. human beings are so obsessed with technological progress. And one of the things that I continue to come to is that we think of everything in this world as being natural, but the behavior mm -hmm. of butterflies mm -hmm. and wolves and the way rivers run down from the mountain. But we don't think of ourselves and our own behavior as natural. We, we don't think of our own thirst for conquest and innovation and, mm -hmm. and the even materialism. I think materialism is probably a very mm -hmm. natural reaction to our need to somehow or another fuel innovation mm -hmm. and that one of the ways to ensure that innovation is constantly fueled is that people are constantly obsessed with buying new things mm -hmm. and constantly obsessed with the latest and greatest mm -hmm. which fuels innovation mm -hmm. and when you look at the universe itself and you look at all the various things that we know to be natural processes in the universe, like mm -hmm. like in order to make a human being, a star has to explode. Mm -hmm. When you literally are made out of stardust, mm -hmm. I mean, just, when you run that by people for the first time, they go, wait, what? Like in order to, you, for you to have carbon-based life form that mm -hmm. has to be created inside a burning, dying star. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way you make this thing, like mm -hmm. what you mm -hmm. are right now. And then that thing makes artificial reality. And then that thing makes 
perhaps even crazier makes i mean if you follow the ideas of technological progress if something gets to a point where it's indiscernible from reality how do you know it's not a new reality mm -hmm. how do you know it's not a new kind of reality mm -hmm. like jamie sent me hip to these artificial worlds that people have created online where they're essentially infinite mm -hmm. and they're constantly changing and morphing and growing and the games are terrible. Mm -hmm. People don't like them because you go you go to places and there's fucking nothing there. Yeah, yeah. And you can go to an infinite number of these places and there's nothing there. Like these adventures are non-existent. So you're on these you're in these gigantic fake worlds where you're traveling from place to place, but right now we're looking at it in a very two-dimensional way. You're mm -hmm. looking at it on a flat screen. One day it's not going to be two-dimensional. One day it's going to be something that you're interfacing with your consciousness is interfacing with it. Is it only real if we can take it and drop it on something, if mm -hmm. we can hit it with a hammer, if we could put it on a scale, if yep, we can yep. use a measuring stick and measuring it? Is it only real there? Or is it real if it follows every single check, like if you check off every mm -hmm. single mm -hmm. item on the list of conscious reality and conscious mm -hmm. experience? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I think the dichotomy that a lot of people think in terms of, of natural and non-natural, I think it's just meaningless. Um, I mean, people firstly think this is natural and this is not. I mean, in a sense, everything we're doing is natural because we're like homo sapiens are part of a natural process. Um, and in another, maybe in another sense, everything we're doing is not natural, but then why does that matter? What's the moral re relevance of something being natural versus not natural? Right. Lots of stuff that happens in the natural world is just really awful. Huge amounts of cannibalism, rape, like yeah um murder suffering um so it's not clear why we would care about something being natural rather than non-natural um but then the second question is yeah let's consider this uh virtual reality again um this experience machine that you could plug yourself into and as part of the description i said oh none of this would be real you'd have all of these interactions with people that you think are friends and so on but that wouldn't be real and I think you could very well push back on that and say, why should something be physically instantiated like, uh, in order for it to count as a real experience? Right. Why is it not the case that in this virtual reality you're interacting with algorithms, but that's just as much, um, at least it's possible for that to be just as much friendship as if you're interacting with uh, people who are you know, flesh and blood? Um, and I think it's hard to explain kind of what the difference would be because, you know, if you think about Star Trek, you know, Jean-Luc Picard can be friends with Data and Android. He's not kind of bio biological, but, you know, we think that uh, you can still have kind of moral worth and friendships and so on with creatures that are not made of kind of human biology, in which case, why does the fact that something merely lives on silicone, why wouldn't that? Um, or as kind of seemingly merely software, why does that mean you couldn't have kind of a genuine um, friendship with that thing, if it, if it acts in a sufficiently sophisticated way, perhaps? Isn't there also an issue with our incredibly limited ability to view reality itself? Because we're only viewing the dimensions that are relevant to us in this current state Mm -hmm. Of carbon-based life form, mm -hmm. this 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 talking monkey clinging to mm -hmm. the spaceship, flying through the universe. Right. Yeah, this yeah. is this is what's important to us. 
But when you pay attention to those, the dudes who write on yellow legal pads and they mm -hmm. get into quantum physics and they have all those crazy equations that nobody but them understands, mm -hmm. maybe you do. I look at that shit I and I go, what the fuck are they writing? But they believe, I mean, what is the current model? They, they, they believe there's at least 11 dimensions. There, mm -hmm. there perhaps mm -hmm. could be more. What if there is a dimension that you can plug into that it's purely consciousness driven, meaning there's no physical experience, there's no touching the ground, mm -hmm. there's no gravity, but you exist in a conscious state and it's perpetual. Like if you take a rocket ship and it gets past our gravity and shoots off into distant space and you have a clear shot of, mm -hmm. you know, 14 billion years back to the beginning of the universe itself mm -hmm. with nothing in the way, mm -hmm. you're just going to keep going for 14 billion light years. You're just going to keep going. Like what if there is a place that your consciousness can go to like that where it can't, it's no longer burdened by biology, by the timeline of birth to death, mm -hmm. by the limitations of the flesh, but consciousness itself can exist in some bizarre dimension that we just have an access to. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think consciousness is probably just ultimately a physical process. Uh, Why do so you think that? In, uh, ultimately because of uh, conservation of energy. Um, the reason being, so, you know, there's this age-old philosophical debate between um, the monists and dualists, mm -hmm. uh, people who think, is consciousness just ultimately some sort of physical process, or is it something special? So Descartes thought there was this um, pineal gland, this little bit of your brain, and your conscious kind of soul was just kind of steering your, like, monkey body <laughs> mm -hmm. um, through this pineal gland. But the question is just for why, the, I think the strongest argument about why that couldn't be right is it seems to be, like it would have to be creating energy out of nowhere. And we've never, it seems to be just fixed law of the universe that that just can't happen. Because in order for you know this conscious mind to, um, if it's not merely a physical process, if it's not just the brain, in order for it to be able to affect what this physical entity is doing, it would have to use energy to be able to do that. Um, so the energy would have to be coming from somewhere, and if it's not coming from just the physical realm, then suddenly we've got this counterexample to all the rest of science. Sort of, but are you aware of the theories of human neurotransmitters being pathways to other dimensions, like dimethyltryptamine? Do you, you know about all that? Um, I mean, I know about DMT. Do you know it's produced in the pineal gland? Mm. Where Descartes thought that all that stuff was going on, the seed of the soul, what the Egyptians called the Eye of Horus, and mm -hmm. the reason why the Catholics and so many ancient religions were so focused on pine cones in their mm -hmm. their art and their their um, imagery, that's the pineal gland. Mm -hmm. like, that that's the the image of it. That's what yeah. it's supposed to represent. And for people who have had these intense transformative psychedelic experiences by consuming mm -hmm. exogenous dimethyltryptamine, mm -hmm. which is produced by the brain, mm -hmm. that you have these insane transformative experiences mm -hmm. where you feel like you are traveling to other dimensions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I do want to say like- Have you done any of that? Um, I've never done DMT. Oh, no. you son of a bitch, why not? What are you doing? What are you wasting your time? I know, I'm, too, I'm such a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's something that's in the brain. I mean, it's a natural product of uh, human biology. I mean, whether it's natural or not isn't the question. Just, uh, you know, if I'm going to have a career based on my brain, I want to be very careful to... To not um, break it? To not break it, yeah. Yeah, but it's uh, one of the most transient drugs ever observed in the body. Your body brings it back to baseline in like 15 minutes. Hmm. Okay, is that... Because, um, I mean, there's a lot of... I do think there's like tons of... People very often greatly overestimate the risks of non-legal drugs like... 
MDMA is like super safe and so on. Uh, um, very over overestimate the, the list, the the risks. The is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's of like MDMA. A, yeah, yeah. MDMA so, is weird, right? That's a weird one. It's it's not a natural drug. Um, dimethyltryptamine. I think the real concern would be psychological, mm -hmm. because what you face is so bizarre. Terence McKenna, McKenna had the best quote about it. I think he said that uh, you would risk death by astonishment. Mm. Yeah. Okay, to the thing. Well, it's uh, it's so bizarre that it's almost a sin for a guy as smart as you to not experience mm -hmm. it. But you just come right back, and you're, you, even when you're there, you're there. I mean, okay. it's you. It's not like you, uh, your consciousness dissolves into some bizarre quasi-living state, and then mm -hmm. you have to like work your way back to being you again. Yeah. No, you're you. You're Will McCaskill in the dimension, mm -hmm. whatever the fuck it is. But what's so, crazy about it is that this is produced in the very area where Descartes was believing the seat of the soul is and so many different eastern religions mm -hmm. and all all this psychological like all these different all these different religions and all these different uh, cultures they they were all convinced that that one gland had some mm -hmm. massive significance mm -hmm. in terms of the spirit and the soul whatever that means whatever the spirit means so yeah so then the question is just in these experiences is it the case that you're like seeing into genuinely seeing into another dimension? Right. Or is it the case that you just have a new kind of perspective on consciousness? So one thing I do think is that in terms of conscious experience, there's the sort of conscious experiences that humans have access to. And I think that must just be 0.001% out of the entire landscape of possible conscious experiences. Mm. So if you think, imagine if you were a bat and you could echolocate. Mm. That's just a radically different conscious experience. I don't think that maps onto any sort of conscious experience that humans could have. Have you seen people do that? You've I seen know that blind the, people, yeah, some yeah. blind people can do that. It's pretty amazing. That is, it is amazing. Very effectively too. It's like yeah, shockingly yeah, yeah. effectively. Um, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, but there's also experiences, human experiences that are available without drugs that some people have achieved through radical states of meditation mm -hmm. and kundalini yoga, mm -hmm. where they could achieve natural psychedelic states, mm -hmm. um, holotropic breathing. Mm -hmm. People that have done that have experienced like really radical psychological mm -hmm. transformations and um, incredible psychedelic experiences mm -hmm. from that as well. Yeah, and so I think like. Um, these sorts of experiences are very important, very interesting. Um, and what they're, you know, I, I said that maybe we experience this 0.01% of all possible conscious experiences. And that just allows you to do like, see a little bit more of this potential vast landscape. Uh, whereas I think, but I think there's nothing unmagical about saying, ultimately that's all explained in terms of physics, in terms of um, different sorts of neurons firing and different mm. sorts of... Uh, transmitters and so on. We don't need to say, oh, and it's also this other thing which breaks all the known laws of um, physics that you're seeing into some other dimension in order for that to be an incredibly important thing. Um, and nor is it unscientific to say we know almost nothing about consciousness. In terms of the areas of scientific inquiry, we have no understanding at all about the relationship between conscious experiences and um, you know, what we would think of as physical um, processes. We so, really have no idea about, you know, if you take, give me any sufficiently complicated physical processes, which are, which are conscious and which are not, all we can go on is really this, well, I'm conscious. And so I know that things that kind of like me are probably conscious too. And that's the best we've got, really. Um, and this is known as a hard problem of consciousness. 
And philosophers often say, like, we, they've solved it with something. And I think it's always begging the question. I think we should be very open to the fact that um, just as in, um, you know, 3000 BC, people had no idea about the laws of physics. This was just completely unexplored territory. We should think contemporary science, this is just a big, like, um, a big black gap in our um, scientific understanding. And perhaps it's something maybe 21st century science, maybe 22nd right. century science can really get to grips with. It, it does seem like the ultimate question, like, what is it for? Why is it here? Mm -hmm. What controls it? Is it in the mind? Mm -hmm. Is it external? Mm -hmm. Is the brain just a, an antenna mm -hmm. that tunes into consciousness? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the dimethyltryptamine question is so bizarre because it's the most potent psychedelic drug known to man, mm -hmm. and your brain makes it. Yeah. Like, so what's I, it in there for? I don't know if this is a myth, but I've heard it's what gets made when you die. Yeah, they believe that during high rates of stress, your body believes you're going to die, mm -hmm. and when you're um, dreaming, when you're in heavy REM sleep, your body okay. produces larger amounts of it than than, than baseline. But they don't know. Mm -hmm. It's it's really difficult. They've only just now, within the last few years, the Cottonwood Research Foundation, which uh, um, uh, Dr. Rick Strassman has a big part of it. He's the guy who wrote the. Uh, book DMT, The Spirit Molecule. He mm -hmm, did a bunch mm -hmm. of the first FDA-approved uh, drug trials with uh, civilians where they um, took people and they gave them a, a Schedule One drug, dimethyltryptamine, mm -hmm. which is so crazy that it's a Schedule One drug mm -hmm, that your mm -hmm. body produces. Mm -hmm. But they gave it to people intravenously uh, over um, the course of you know, several months, and they documented all the different trips mm -hmm. and all the different... Um, the, the different commonalities that these people had in their experiences. And he's working very closely with the Cottonwood Research Foundation. And one of the things that they found is that they've recently discovered, for, it was just anecdotal evidence that it was produced by the pineal gland. We knew that DMT was produced by the liver and the mm -hmm. lungs, but now they know for sure because they've isolated it in rats. Mm -hmm. So in living rats, they know that they produce DMT with the pineal gland. So mm -hmm. that, that explains a lot of you know ancient Eastern mysticism and all the symbolism symbology mm -hmm. this all these symbols that people had to represent this this gland now they know okay well this gland definitely does produce this incredibly mm -hmm. potent psychedelic drug but now the cross the question is at what levels during what periods of stress like how do you have to bring someone to the point of death mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. before it, they experience this and if that is the case is it possible that consciousness itself is something that we you know since we haven't really figured out what exactly it mm -hmm. is is it possible that consciousness can travel through this chemical pathway mm -hmm. that maybe these intense dimethyltryptamine experiences are in fact a gateway to what people have assumed exists from the beginning of time, like an afterlife mm -hmm. or a sea of souls or something, some, some stage of existence other than this physical existence that we all experience right now? Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like I'd be... Sounds like crazy talk, right? It sounds pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's coming out of my mouth. I'm going, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Um, I mean, I think I'd just be surprised if consciousness was just this one chemical. Mm. I think it's much more likely that something it's this emergent phenomenon from this incredibly complex system right. of, you know, billions of different neurons firing in a certain way. And when you have a certain process that's sufficiently complex in the right way, somehow, and this is just this big black box that we've got no idea about, somehow subjective experience comes out of that. But it would seem, I mean, otherwise the issue is you could have just DMT traveling in just a test tube or something and petri dish. 
and it would seem like, oh, is this petri dish um, conscious? That would well, seem the least strange. Why would that be the case if you're breathing air and you're, you know, the air keeps you alive, like you're breathing in and bringing it out? You don't think that air carries the life with it to another place, right? Air is just a component of life. Yeah. It's something that your body requires. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible. Maybe it's the case... Though, again, I feel I'd be surprised if it was like this chemical is necessary for consciousness in some way. I'm not saying it's necessary. But, um, but, but I am curious as to how consciousness varies. Mm-hmm. You know, consciousness, consciousness and you, you, the actual feeling of being alive varies depending upon your health, mm-hmm. depending upon stress levels, depending upon love and happiness. And all these different factors change the way you view the world, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because in, a, in effect that changes consciousness. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you can be more, you know, you can be more elevated. Like you can, I guarantee you, all this effective altruism that you're concentrating on is somehow or another elevating your consciousness because you're putting out so much love and so much happiness and you're helping so many people. There's so many positive benefits to your very existence. Mm-hmm. I've got to manage, I've got to believe rather that somehow or another that manages to come back to you. I mean, it definitely comes back to me in kind of how I feel about my life. Mm. I mean, when we were talking about how, uh, you know, money is just not the key to a happy life, the question is, well, what is? And the answers are having a great community, um, having a greater purpose in life, um, feeling like you're making a difference. Um, So all of these reasons are why, so we've built up this kind of community around effective altruism. Um, You know, people all around the world who are making a significant change. So for example, donating 10% of their income um, to the charities they think are most effective or pursuing a career that they think is really effective. And one thing I wasn't surprising from the outset, but I'm so happy happened, is that this com- strong community has formed. It's kind of like a little global village or something. And people have found that actually far from being a sacrifice, as you might have expected, this is actually incredibly rewarding um, because you've now got this community of people um, who have shared aims to you and you're all working towards this greater goal. Mm. And that's something that I think is very lacking in the world today. So many people just, they work nine to five and, you know, they have a nice time on the weekend, but they're like, where is all of this going? At the end of my life, am I really going to think, yeah, I made the most of this. Whereas if you think at the end of your life, like, yep, I dedicated my life to helping others and I had this transformative impact on thousands of people. You're not going to think at the end of your life, gee, I really wasted that. <laughs> right. It's just something I don't think you can really look at. If you go deep, though, down the philosophical rabbit hole and you really consider that life is this temporary experience and even benefiting someone through this temporary experience is still a temporary experience. It's like you are helping someone. You gave them a pillow for the ride mm-hmm. and it's a temporary ride. And the ride comes to an end. And then what? Mm -hmm. And then what is the point of all this? Like, what is the point of effective altruism if you're just helping people during this temporary ride that doesn't seem to mean anything? Yeah. So I think there's two things. Um, I like your eyebrow. That's really cool. I can't help myself. (laughs) I can do that, too. Just raise up. I just go, what the fuck is this? Um, (laughs) Freak myself out. (laughs) Well, we we do get freaked out at this, uh, you know, when you think of existential ants. Yeah. Yeah. The angst of existence. So I think, there's two, um, I think there's two answers here. Okay. The first is that the ride is the like, goal, right. um, ultimately. Again, if you think the purpose of life is to increase the amount of happiness and reduce the amount of suffering, the final goal is good experiences, and the kind of anti-goal is bad experiences. 
So when we're sitting here talking, having a great time, this is us kind of achieving. This mm. is us getting points on the win um, counter. Because so we're having a just, good time. That's right, yeah. If we were really hating this, then we'd be losing. Well, even more so, so because we're broadcasting this live and millions of people are going to hear it. Yeah, and hopefully so, they're having, hopefully they're enjoying it. Hopefully, and maybe if they're not, at least there's a little stress relief. Like maybe they're at the gym and they go, "These fucking idiots," <laughs> yeah, and they're perhaps. doing squats and they're getting angry. Yeah. So I think that's the first thing, but then the second thing is um, relates to this idea of cosmic significance, where what often motivates? So you say, "Oh, well, we're just along for a ride. We're all going to get eaten up by the sun eventually," and so on. What's the kind of greater purpose of life? But I actually think there are some ways that our actions now can have um, much greater cosmic significance. And that's if, that's because I think if you think that the human race survives for the next few centuries, it seems kind of inevitable that we're going to spread to the stars. Um, and I think that would be good. Again, from this perspective, we can go into more arguments if you want, of just saying what we want to do is promote happiness and reduce suffering. Um, if that means we can live on other planets as well and have kind of thriving civilizations there, not only where the people are having great lives, but also making scientific, artistic contributions and so on, um, then that's a good thing to do as well. Well, there's no technological reason for thinking that we won't be able to do that in the future, um, given current rates of technological progress, unless something really bad happens along the way. And this kind of gets back to one of the things we talked about um, right at the start was one of the focus areas of the effect of altruism community is on kind of trying to reduce uh, risks from of human extinction, of global catastrophic risks. These are the sorts of things that could um, imperil the human journey, as it were. Um, and I think that if you're working to mitigate some of these things, then you're increasing the chance that we do get to the sort of level where um, hum yeah, humanity can have a thriving f future, not just on this planet, but on other planets as well. And that actually means your actions really do have this huge cosmic significance. So the conscious effort to be a kind person, a generous person, an effective altruism spreads and it impacts people. There's this ripple effect and your good deeds could perhaps fuel enough people with this thought and with effective altruism and more people might act on that to the point where we reduce the amount of suffering to the point where we extend the lifespan of human beings we extend the areas where we have no war mm -hmm. we reduce the amount of violence to the point where we can successfully innovate to the point where we can get off this planet that's that and idea. then start from scratch with a new dictator on mars <laughs> donald trump on mars how about that um, yeah, I mean, so I think for the... <laughs> Putin on Mars. Um, well, if he Ugh. could become president of Mars, I'd be pretty happy with that. It'd be we fascinating. We'd planet. have to go to war with Mars. Yeah. Do you think, though, that, I mean, I, I've wondered about this many, many times. I wonder if it's an outdated idea, this idea of traveling to the stars. And again, I go back to this whole interdimensional thing, that I, I wonder if that's the reason why we have never been visited by other planets, uh, by mm -hmm. species from another planet. Maybe that's not what happens. Maybe they develop artificial realities. I mean, maybe, yeah. like what so, Jamie was talking about to me with these um, artificial computer realities. Like, if, if someone develops some sort of a matrix-like world where you can plug into it and experience an infinite number of things in an in, in infinite number of artificially created dimensions mm -hmm. that are indistinguishable from this, 
why would you want to like yeah. risk a six month trip in a metal tube to another planet? I mean, maybe that's really retro. Maybe that's a really ancient way of looking at things. Maybe it's like zeppelins, like big flying <laughs> balloons instead of, you know. So yeah, the question you've raised is called the Fermi paradox, right? Um, which is just given the so much, so a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, um, eight billion galaxies in the affectable um, universe, a hundred billion in the observable universe. Uh, the universe is also pretty old, 15 billion years old. Mm -hmm. So if it was the case that life is very common, that it's very easy for us to, um, life to then develop to a level of advanced technological ability, we should expect to see evidence of aliens all over the place. Right. But yet we see absolutely none. And that means that from somewhere from a habitable planet, somewhere along the path from habitable planet to... Um, kind of space-faring civilization, there must be some big filter. There must be some step that's just incredibly hard um, to, for that to... or incredibly unlikely that civilization moves them or life moves from that step to another. And one hypothesis is this, yeah, like, people just... Civilization gets to a sufficiently advanced level and they just chill out. They just start, Or they go internally. Yeah, they go internal. The issue with that explanation, I think, is it's just not strong enough. Because, you know, you'd have to think that that's, for this kind of filter to work, it has to be a really strong filter. Filter. Um, yeah, as in, like, because there's just so many stars, so many Earth, mm -hmm. um, so many seemingly habitable planets. Right. Um, it has to be the case that it's exceptionally unlikely at some stage or other, like, and not just really unlikely, as in, like, you know, one in a trillion unlikely um, to, on this path from habitable planet to space-failing civilization. And so you'd have to think, like, of a trillion um, civilizations that get to this level of technological ability, they all choose to turn inward. And that seems just very unlikely. It seems like, well, at least one would really try and spread out. And if so, then we'd see evidence of that. Um, because, cosmically speaking, the time from um, getting to the level of technological capability where you can spread to the stars and the level where we'd be able to kind of see real evidence of that is kind of small. So I actually think that the reason that we can't see aliens is because the very first stages of life are incredibly unlikely. The move from nothing to kind of basic replication, and then secondly, the move from single-celled um, organisms to multi-celled organisms. Um, and the reason for thinking this is very unlikely is it took an incredibly long time um, on Earth billions of years before this happened. And in particular, in the move from single-celled to multi-celled life, that's only ever happened once. And so, given that we don't see any aliens, we should think some part of this is really hard. Our best guess is that that, that move from single-celled to multi-celled, and perhaps from the, cre the creation of the first cells as well, that was incredibly difficult. Um, and that means that yeah, we're just exceptionally lucky to be alive, as it were. But if the universe is infinite, that means that this has happened an infinite number of times. That's right. Though it might, though very far away, like sufficiently far away that we are not connectable to each, like we can't contact each other, observe each other. So. But there's an infinite number of those infinitely far places. Yes.
So there would be some, there would be some like clusters of the universe. And again, the idea of the universe is infinite. It's only a hypothesis. Right. And I'm just deferring to other people who say it's the leading hypothesis. Well, the the most exists. puzzling hypothesis to me was the evidence of supermassive black holes being at the center of every galaxy. And that the hypothesis was that the supermassive black holes are exactly one half of one percent of the mass of the entire galaxy, and that if you go through those supermassive black holes, you may in fact go into a completely new universe mm -hmm. filled with hundreds of billions of galaxies, each with supermassive black holes at the center of those galaxies, which will take you to hundreds of billions of galaxies in another universe, and okay. that it's in never ending, and that's what the real infinity is. Mm. It's not just the mass of all the things that we can observe in the 14 plus billion light years that we know of from the Big Bang to today. It's all of those things being portals mm -hmm. to incredibly different, totally new universes. Okay, yes, yeah, so it's turtles all the way down. Turtles all the way down. So the, the real question to me, and this, I, had, I, this, I proposed this to Brian Cox, and I didn't get a sufficient answer. It's why would we assume that there's someone more advanced than us. Like, it is possible that mm -hmm. someone, some species, something, is the tip of the spear. That something is the first. Mm -hmm. That something is the most advanced life form mm -hmm. in the universe. Mm -hmm. Why would we assume that someone would be more advanced than us if we are the most advanced thing that we can find? The only logic that I could point to was that, that we are relatively young in terms of the history and the age of the universe itself. Mm -hmm. The universe itself being roughly 14 billion years old, we are 4.6, what are we, what is, what is the age of the Earth? Yeah, but somewhere, um, somewhere in there, sounds about like, somewhere yeah. in the neighborhood, right? Relatively young when you consider that 10 billion years of life, give or take, happen or, or mm -hmm. of existence happened before we came along. But why would we assume that there's anything out there that's more advanced? Mm -hmm. And why would we assume that this isn't as far as anybody's ever gotten? Yeah. I mean, that's so in, I, in terms of infinity, mm -hmm. right? 14 billion years seems like a long time. <laughs> but in terms of infinity, it's a blink. So I think we should believe that in the... And again, let's now just ditch the infinity and just think about the observable universe, which is finite. There's people pulled over sweating Maybe. in their car right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Infinity... Have you ever heard of Graham's number? This is now a total digression of Graham's number. Um, I don't believe so. What's Graham's no, number? It got known as um, uh, the largest number ever seriously used in the mathematical proof. And uh, Tim Urban of Wait But Why has this amazing post um, trying to explain just how big Graham's number is. And uh, you have to use a special notation in order to be able to explain it. And numbers just get really big. And once you really start to think this through, you're just like, you're left just kind of rocking back and forth. Like, um, yeah, not like just totally Untenable. freaked out. Yeah. For our little monkey minds. Because you think like trillion is so big. Yeah. Trillion is just a speck of dust compared right. to right. James number. Even a trillion years is a speck of yeah. dust. When you consider the possibility of the universe itself being infinite or mm -hmm. the possibility that is a continuous cycle of big bangs to expansion to contraction yeah, yeah, yeah. back to an infinitely small point, back to another big yeah. bang, which is a plausible possibility. Yeah. I mean, um, I think... Yeah, I'm also, I'm very worried, you know, I'm not, I'm not Neil deGrasse Tyson, right. which I'm uh, butchering tons of the science. I think my understanding at the moment is that we currently think that the universe is just expanding and it just keeps expanding forever. Right. I know it's definitely a leading theory that it was 
going to expand and slow and then kind of clench. Yes. Um, but you mentioned uh, humans being the most advanced kind of creature. I think that probably is correct in the observable, or certainly our galaxy, let's say. In our um, Well, we know it is in our solar system, right? Yeah, that's right. But I think we know it is in our galaxy as you well. You think so? And again, it's the so, reason... It's so far. But the thing is that um, it's far as in it's like 100,000 light years. But oh, when you're thinking nothing. about, <laughs> But when you're thinking about 15 billion years of the right. age of the universe, that's actually just a very short period of time. Right. But why would you assume that 100,000 light years from now, there's not something exactly like us? So it's possible. But the thing is that if it was somewhat easy or if it was just not incredibly difficult for intelligent life to evolve then it would have happened in the past already and we would see evidence of it. And the fact that we don't see any evidence at all of intelligent life and other um, solar systems or any, like at all uh, suggests that it's incredibly difficult for that to happen. But isn't so, that like being in the woods and unzipping your tent and sticking your head out and saying, I don't see anything, this must be empty woods? Um, it's more like, I mean... You're, you're talking about a very small area that you've observed and we've, oh. we've taken account of. So I right? think it's more like, um, because I think if an alien civilization or us in the future goes to kind of start, um, uh, yeah, spreading to the stars, in the course of, you know, uh, just a few seconds, a million years, let's say, mm -hmm. There will be really significant evidence. You'd see Dyson spheres being constructed around suns, you know, to harness the sun's energy. Um, you'd see some evidence of, like, galactic engineering projects and so on. It would be, like, a really big impact. But and you think so you'd see that with hundreds of thousands of light years between us and the observable objects? But again, 100,000 light years is just not very long um, compared to the kind of 15 billion. So it would just be this amazing coincidence if it's the case that um, a life that's as advanced or more advanced than us has evolved at just the same time as us, where mm -hmm. 100,000 years, give or take, is basically just the same time, but hasn't evolved in the pa hasn't evolved more than a million years ago, mm -hmm. where we would start to see kind of major impact of that. So of if that something within the observable universe, but we've observed so little, we don't even have really adequate photographs of anything outside of our solar system. Yeah. But, I mean, everything so, is just radio spectrum, you know, these the analysis that yeah. they're getting off of light waves of what the c components of the atmosphere is. And So using your analogy, what I'm suggesting is that um, if it was the case that alien life was like not, intelligent life was not that hard to come by, you'd stick your head out the tent and you'd look like Tokyo rather than looking like the woods. Um, but why does it have to look like Tokyo? Why can't it look like Kansas? Why can't it be, like, really spread out and very little life? Because I think if life is spreading out, then it's just going to want to... What does life do? It just tries to harness resources and tries to grow more of itself. And Maybe it reaches the, a point where it realizes that's futile. It just concentrates on effective altruism at home. Oh, perhaps. Uh, home so, that, so that's the turning inward suggestion again. Yeah. And so maybe it's the case that, like, yeah. Like, is it more important to get your shit together at home or to go all over the world with the same bullshit ideas, right? And I mean, if that's maybe. the case, wouldn't that be the same thing that you could turn towards interstellar travel? Like, wouldn't it be more important for <laughs> these communities to concentrate on taking care of their planet and figuring out a way to work 
in some sort of uh, harmonious fashion with the very nature of the planet itself rather than travel to the stars. I mean, possibly. But now imagine there's... So on this alien alien planet, there's 10 billion aliens. And they're like, let's say they're a thousand years more advanced than humans are at the moment. Uh, in order for this argument to work, it'd have to be the case that every single one of them makes that decision to just turn inwards and focus on... Why would that be home? the case? Because not all those people would be the ones that would innovate in the first place. It wouldn't have to be everyone that makes a decision. It would have to be everyone of a high enough consciousness to figure out how to make these interstellar machines decides not to harness this nuclear power and mm -hmm. jet off into space. But I think over time that, will just, that would just be everyone. Um, really? Because, well, yeah, I mean, just technological progress just keeps going. And eventually, like, tech. I mean, obviously, we're doing this, like, weird thought experiment. Right, spe right, right. Speculating on, like, economics and sociology of um, a hypothetical alien world. But, uh, I mean, just at some point, as that, as a civilization progresses, then um, there's going to at least be many, many actors um, with sufficient power. So it's sort of like... to spread to the stars. And... You need to say that every single one of them decides to turn inwards. So it's sort of like um, technology becomes very rare and then ultimately over time becomes very common, like the yeah, cell phone. Like the cell phone, right. Yeah. So when and the f cell phone was first invented, it was extremely rare and very expensive. Now everyone has one, and the capabilities of those cell phones have greatly, greatly improved. Yeah. And that this will happen with everything, including space travel. Yeah, I mean, but also it doesn't need to be the case that it gets out to 10 billion people, even if it's just like a thousand people or something. Again, mm. it would just seem unlikely that, you know, in every civilization and every one just has, you know, even mm. just a thousand people, everyone chooses, not what single person thinks, hey, I would just want there to be more, like, right. more spread out. Now, that obviously is dependent upon there being a more advanced civilization than human beings on the planet Earth. Yeah. Because if they weren't, if they were a few years behind us, like if they were stuck in the 1950s, mm -hmm. or maybe they're stuck in ancient Greece, or, you know, mm -hmm. then, then obviously they don't have the capabilities yet. We might be the very most advanced. We, we might be the very tip of the spear, right? Yeah. And I just think, yeah, because I think it would be unlikely that um, something more advanced happened just a little bit faster than us, but not, mm. say, 100 million years ago, which is right. not very long ago. Right. In cosmic terms. But it's still possible. I mean, it's still possible it's, that it's something possible. happened 100 it's years possible. quicker than us or that they haven't had the same setbacks that we've had in terms of like uh, asteroidal impacts and mm -hmm. natural catastrophes, supervolcanoes and the like. It's a, it's a real weird thought experiment because you start thinking and you, you start extrapolating, okay, well, where are we going to be? Mm -hmm. You know, where are we going to be? And why would we do that? Like, that's one of the things that always gets me about this whole trip to Mars. And I, I had a joke about it in my my last comedy special mm -hmm. where people were, somebody actually said this to me, yeah. like, because it was before California had solved its drought or Mother Nature solved our drought for us, rather, mm -hmm. where people were like, hey, man, we should really consider going to Mars because, I mean, look at our environment. California is mm -hmm. almost out of water. And my joke was like we're right next to the fucking ocean like there's so much water you can't see the end of it yeah. we have a salt problem we don't have a water problem like what are you gonna do you're gonna bring water to mars like that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard in my life yeah this is weird when people start talking about mars i mean i think so there's the project of going to mars setting foot on mars setting up a colony right now like the aim of doing that because it's awesome totally on board yeah. with that Fuck in the yeah. same way as like going to the moon it's like right. look what we can achieve this is an exciting like global human project totally even just the space that. shuttle going into orbit it's pretty yeah. badass right yeah exactly exactly 
But then there's talk of like, oh, well, we need this in order to be able to survive as a species. I'm like, look, if you want to have this kind of refuge or colony in order to make um, the Earth more robust, Mars is just not a great place to pick. Right. <laughs> there's so many different ways that, um, I mean, Mars is like really un- inhospitable. And if you wanted to build a refuge, why not go under the sea? Um, mm. That's like uh, going to be protected from... Um, you know, viruses or asteroid impacts and Not so on. Not really, though. If one of those big things that slammed into the Yucatan slams into where your village is in the sea? I mean, if you if you had um, this underwater village with, you know, 10 years of food supplies and so on, then you could, like, come back. Because the impact from the asteroid wasn't just, like, shook everyone up. It's that the skies go, mm-hmm. the skies get clouded over with ash. The Earth rang for a million years. Oh, what is that? As in, from like... From the impact. Like, yeah. That's so interesting. That's, That's so, so insane. Cool. Yeah. When you think about how big that thing was that killed the dinosaurs 65 million years ago and that yeah. there's hundreds of thousands of those things floating around in yeah. space. So, yeah, I was asking some people at NASA just um, uh, just two days ago, actually, on how many of them we've managed to identify. Because they're serious about kind of scanning the skies to yeah. find them all. Um, and the answer, I thought we had it covered. I thought this was something that NASA was like, yeah, yeah. We we know where all the like Earth killers are, and they their response was like, no, we've got no idea. <laughs> we just we don't know how many of them are out there, and so we don't know how many we've managed to track. There's a guy named Randall Carlson that I've had him on podcast a few times, mm-hmm. and he's obsessed with the idea that asteroidal impacts were probably what ended the ice age, you know, ten mm-hmm. to twelve thousand years ago, and and he's there's a significant amount of physical evidence that points to this. Um, both in um, evidence of impact in um, nuclear glass. Mm-hmm. Tri- I think it's called tritonite. I forget how the, the exact word. Um, but it, it appears uh, all throughout Europe and Asia at around that same mm-hmm. timeline, around 10,000 and 12,000 years ago, when they do core samples. And uh, it points to this idea that there were significant impacts mm-hmm. from asteroidal objects all all over Europe and all over Asia around that time. And they think some of them slammed into the uh, ice caps mm-hmm. that were, you know, North America was covered in, a giant chunk of it was covered in as much as two miles high of yeah. ice just 10,000 years ago. And he points to an incredible amount of physical change in the environment that looks like it took place over a very short period of time, like catastrophic mm-hmm. change over an incredibly short ma- amount of time that he believes points to these impacts, melting the ice caps, creating massive amount of flooding, mm-hmm. killing off who knows how many people, resetting civilization in many different parts of the world. And... Um, this evidence of these uh, of the nuclear glass of these uh, micro diamonds that also mm-hmm. exist they find them during uh, nuclear test sites when they blow off bombs and they also find them at ast- asteroidal impact sites and you know when you know that we have been hit many times in the past and they do have evidence mm-hmm. of that and then you see the moon and all the different impact craters on the moon you know that this is just what he calls a cosmic shooting gallery mm-hmm. essentially He's like, it's very likely that that was the cause of the end of the Ice Age. There's a, a lot of, uh, there's so, climate data that sort of seems to point to that as well. Okay, so there's, so this is now like really outside my area of expertise. But, I'll, um, I'll send you some links to some of his stuff because yeah. he's been obsessed with this for about 30 years. Okay. Fascinating the, guy. The two things that would really surprise me about that are firstly just that you know, there were so many Ice Ages and it was just mm-hmm. seemed to be this, it comes on, goes off. Oh, and sure, it, and yeah. Fairly, um, 
you know, fairly dynamic, predictable process, whereas asteroid impact, super random. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't expect to have this kind of back and forth dynamic if it was asteroids that was doing it. And then secondly, my understanding would be that asteroids would cool the planet because asteroid hits, ash just spreads out all over the sky. That just blocks out sunlight. Mm. So it would surprise me if it had this kind of warming effect. Well, I think the idea is that, first of all, when it hits, it the impact is massive and it melts off just a, the huge chunk of the amount of water that is uh, covering North America, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that causes this massive flooding and this massive changing of the topography. And as far as like what causes the nat- I don't know if it, it, it interrupts it temporarily and then it comes back and gets warmer. But the, yeah, that natural cycle of warming and cooling has been going on since they, I mean, from as far back as they can mm-hmm. measure it. What he's talking about is significant, quick changes. Also, the extinction event that killed somewhere around 65% or more of all mm-hmm. of the large uh, mammals in North America mm-hmm. it, really quickly, like woolly mammoths really quickly, oh, yeah. saber tooth tigers really humans. quickly. They don't know about that. It's, there's a lot of speculation back and forth about that um, because they would think that humans did it, but then they found these mass d- dead sites where they're not consumed. And uh, they, this, what was the ones that he showed where these woolly mammoths, they found them, where they uh, had their legs were broken, and it looked like they just the impact of, of something had knocked them flat. And they had found like thousands of them in these mass death sites. Interesting, but I thought that the um, so firstly, it just seemed to me like the homo, the idea that it was humans killing them all just seems like crazy. Oh no, I thought it just like seems like such a good explanation. But they didn't even have spe- they had atlatls. Oh, but then and that was like the best weapon they had at the time. They weren't even riding on horseback at the time. But then, with respect to the death sites, I thought the mechanism for killing a woolly mammoth is you just got like you know two hundred humans and you just chase the woolly mammoth off a cliff. So that does work if you can get them near a cliff. Yeah. But the idea of getting them all near cliffs and killing them all off by a bunch of people that hadn't figured out the wheel seems yeah. a little unlikely. It's like, just it's possible. Like over thousands of years. Because that's the thing, like, we often tell these stories about, um, you know, pre-civilization humans. It's like, oh, and then they migrated mm-hmm. and made this great journey to um, Europe and so on. And often that's like, they moved a mile every year. Right. So it's like, great journey is actually just this very yes. gradual Yes, yes, very gradual. And yeah. similarly, if you've got this grave site and it's got, wow, hundreds of woolly mammoths in this one place. That might be over thousands of years. I mean, again, this is just something I'm... No, that's the thing. They're no talking about carbon dating, that they're all, it's all like within the same time period. You'd have to like really go over his stuff with a fine-tooth comb and talk to him about it because I'm not the right guy. I just yeah. I just listen to him and go, whoa, and then yeah. you know try to relay it as much as possible. There's a podcast that I actually retweeted today because somebody brought it up on YouTube. It's available, so I'll, I'll send you to it afterwards okay, and see if you what do you think about it. Yeah. But, but this is something, yeah, I read, if you know the book Sapiens... One of the no, things. you're like the fifth person to talk about it. Everyone, I gotta get it. Everyone talks about Sapiens. Sapiens is like the book that yeah. everyone just um, pull on up to that. Pull, pull that, that a little closer to you because yeah, it makes sure. a big difference in the sound. Um, but yeah, one of the things that most blew my mind there was yeah how much megafauna there was in the early days of Homo sapiens. You know, roving across North America, there were two ton sloths, mm. huge giant sloths, and yeah. these were one of just very very many massive megafauna that we just don't have anymore. Yeah, the Blitzkrieg hypothesis is what they call the human animal killing off all of the Mm -hmm. uh, other animals. It's a really troubling hypothesis because we we don't want to think that we're capable of doing that. But obviously we do do that. I mean, we're doing it right now. We did it to the buffalo. um, I mean, we almost, we brought the bison. Yeah. We're doing it just, 
Um, Tasmanian tiger. There's a lot yeah. of different animals that within our lifetime have gone extinct. I mean, we have actually, like, in terms of extinctions, um, I'm not sure if I'll get the number right, but um, it would be pretty accurate to describe this as the fourth. And maybe extinction fourth, event. But mass extinction because it's yeah. just huge, the number of um, species that have gone extinct as a result of human activity. And it's also one of those things where we don't think of it as being significant because it happens slowly over the course of many years. Yeah. But if you look at it on a timeline, you're like, oh, my God, look, everything's dying right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's slow by human standards, but right. very quick by Nature. geological standards. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. it's a fascinating subject, the end of the Ice Age happening so quickly the animals dying off so quickly and so many large mammals dying off so quickly. So when you, you think about what we know people have done, like when we almost uh, killed off the bison, they, we know why they did that. We know how they did that. Mm -hmm. And they did it with extraordinary weapons. Mm -hmm. And they did it with high-powered rifles. They could shoot things from a far distance. Mm -hmm. They did it by shooting off trains. I mean, they did a lot of crazy shit back then. So we we understand, I mean, and there's a lot of physical evidence. There's photographs of the mm -hmm. actual piles of, of bones and all that crazy shit. But when you when you take away those physical capabilities, the extraordinary physical capabilities, like even riding on horseback, there's a guy named Dan Flores who's a, a, a fascinating guy. He's a, a scholar who believes that even without the um, Europeans coming over here and market hunting and killing off all the bison. Mm -hmm. He thinks just the firearm and the horse with the Native Americans, mm -hmm. it's entirely possible that they were going to eradicate the bison on their own. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, it just depends about timescales. So mm -hmm. even if you're just killing like slightly more of the species, like killing just enough of the species that they're now below the, um, you know, two um, children for every two right. parents. Right, viability Vi stage. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Then just over sufficient time. Yeah. And remembering that Homo sapiens between the hunter-gatherer age was 190,000 years. Um, very long time spans. Again, very short geologically, but um, yeah, very long time spans. So again, just a l you don't have to be killing that many woolly mammoth um, to drive them to extinction over the course of several thousand years. What are your thoughts when it comes to like the ethical reintroduction of animals that have gone extinct? Yeah. Like there are some people in Russia that are constant, they're currently rather working on some form of a woolly mammoth. Mm -hmm. We're going to take woolly mammoth DNA from some of these frozen bodies that they've gotten. I mean, they've gotten some pretty intact woolly mammoths now mm -hmm. and they're going to try to clone one. Yeah. So um, I don't know the details of how this will work. Um, I guess they have to just state it in an elephant. Um, but I mean, I think it's like scientifically interesting. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But what if they I don't re think reintroduce them? Like I mean, where you have woolly mammoths everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I don't think there's any ethical imperative to do it. I think there's not a... Um, Imperative not like I would think just if there's more woolly mammoths, that's the same as there just being more um, elephants and it might be of scientific interest. I heard um, While we're on like hypotheses that we heard and we're like, oh, that's cool, but sound ridiculous um, Yeah, I heard the idea was reintroducing woolly mammoths to like stomp down snow in order to prevent yes um, <laughs> prevent uh, Global um, warming, prevent global yeah, warming to slow it off. down somehow or another. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely things of the sort of thing that people say over dinner, but um, yeah, well, the idea wasn't just stomp down s snow, but also to eat the foliage. Okay. Yeah, there was like some exfoliating 
thing that they're doing where they would consume so many trees and so many plants that it would actually lower the temperature of the earth. Okay. What in the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. It just seems that you're skeptical of that. But, I mean, there is this philosophical question of whether you should... So, the question of biodiversity loss, um, which has been huge. Um, How do you value that? So, is it the case that loss of a species... Um, you can just cash that out in terms of impacts on individuals. Because obviously it's bad for the animals that die in the course of that, and it's we maybe like have a loss of kind of information that we can just not get back. Um, but is there something intrinsically bad about just having fewer species? Mm. And a lot of people seem to act to su- act in a way that suggests they seem to believe yes. Um, but it's hard. I think it's hard philosophically to cash that out. Um, I think it's hard to explain, like, why would it, we care so much about losing um, species where we don't seem to care about having, you know, deliberately abandoning um, bleeding and so on, that we get more species. Um, it seems like we're only just conservative about, like, not losing them. But if it really is of value to have greater diversity of species, why do we not actively try and promote a greater amount of biodiversity rather than merely preventing loss of biodiversity the i think the reintroduction the reintroduction of of species it also like if you have an environment that's stable if you have some sort of an ecosystem that's stable Mm -hmm. and then you reintroduce a predator or prey or some animal that's going to eat up all the foliage it's you're you're running this big risk and you're taking these big chances that you can sort of predict the future. You could look at A plus B. Well, that's going to equal C. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always work that way. And there's been disastrous result, results when they've introduced species um, to other environments where they're not native. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what's going on with like places like Australia? Yeah, so, Australia is kind of hilarious in that regard. Yeah, so they introduced a lab. No, yeah. they introduced a type of frog to Australia. I'm going to butcher this as well. But they introduced a type of frog to Australia. It took over. So they introduced rabbits to try and eat these frogs or something to eat the frogs, and then they took over and didn't kill the frogs. And I think they multiple Well, then they introduced to foxes to, to try to kill the rabbits, and, and the they killed all the ground-nesting birds, yeah. and they introduced cats to kill the foxes, and, yeah. they, I mean, they we have cats bit, to kill bad, the rabbits. Bad track record of trying to introduce species. Well, to, especially back then. Yeah. You know, when they were doing this in the 1800s in Australia, they really didn't know what the fuck they were doing. They were mm-hmm. thinking short-term, right in front of them, and... They also brought in a bunch of animals that don't have natural predators, so they have to gun them down from the fucking sky. I mean, they have these all these uh, deer and stags and all these magic beasts. I mean, have you ever seen a stag? They're incredible. They roar. They sound like a lion. Mm-hmm. And they have so many of them in Australia and particularly in New Zealand, mm-hmm. but they don't have any natural predators. Zero. No predators. Yeah, okay. So they have to fly over in helicopters and gun them down. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, and they leave them. They just leave them to rot. They just have too many of them. Yeah, it's the same with kangaroos as well. Yeah. Um, yeah cause have I'm... you seen those herds of kangaroos? You ever seen that? No, I haven't actually. Oh my God. There's a video that some guy took um, somewhere in Australia, and it is... Thousands and thousands of kangaroos running across this field, mm-hmm. and it looks like a like like, like some apocalypse, some apocalyptic kangaroo invasion. Yeah, yeah. See if you can find that, Jamie. The video just because it's worth seeing to like, to realize like, oh, this is what can happen when there's no predators. Like animals yeah, yeah. just get completely out of control. Yeah. So I'm vegetarian and have been for a long time now. Um, but with some other vegetarian friends, we had the conversation of yeah, what would be the most ethical meat to eat? 
Um, and I think we concluded that kangaroo would be the most ethical because it's being killed anyway because they just need to, like, you've got this population explosion. It's on land that wouldn't be otherwise used for anything. You know, they're roaming free, they've got pretty good lives. Um, the environmental impact is therefore going to be um, you know, low and non-existent as well. Um, obviously, kangaroo meat is very unusual in almost all of those the guards. It's not, though. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very uh, nutritious, apparently. Kangaroos is actually a type of deer, believe it or not. Yeah, I don't believe that. I thought yeah. it was a marsupial, which is a totally different... It is, but it's related to the deer in some... Str- Look at these fuckers just hanging out. This is not the one I'm talking about, though. There's a bunch of them running yeah. across a field. This is just a large population of kangaroo. Do you yeah, know, there's some you know way have, in the deer family in some strange way. See if Jamie could find that, too. Do you know that we have wallabies in Scotland? Yeah, I know. Yeah, in an island called Inchconachan. Yeah, I've, I've heard got, of that. I've visited them a number of times. And the, were they introduced to Scotland? Yeah, so Lady Aaron Cahoon had... Oh, uh, that bitch. Yeah, well, <laughs> no need for that. Um, Who is she? So she, I actually don't know, but she owned, she owned the island. She owned a zoo on oh. the island, like a personal zoo. Um, and she, uh, died, I think. The, ru- the zoo went to rack and ruin, so it just kind of was The wallabies just got out? And the, zo- and the wallabies took over, yeah. Whoa. And the first evidence, because people wouldn't regularly visit this, was they would find these dead wallaby carcasses on the mainland. And that was during the winter, the loch, Scottish for lake, would freeze over and the wallabies would hop on the ice. Whoa. And then, and then get hit by a car. But they're now very tame. It was a shame because I first found out about them back when it was still a bit of a secret. That's fascinating. Now it's become a bit of a tourist um, hotspot. Wow. It says that kangaroos are marsupials and more closely related to possums than deer. Oh, okay. So they're not related to deer. Yeah, Am I no. correct? Mm, yeah. Mm. Someone had told me that they were in some way in the deer family. Or cousins of deer or something like that. So earlier explorers said that they were just, that's what their descriptions were. That they were like deers without antlers and they stood upright like men. But uh, I saw some, I mean, it's a cure a question. So I didn't find like an official scientist saying, here's the sighting on it. But uh, yeah, that's what it I, w- I wish I had this my whole life. Someone who could just follow me around and correct me every time I say something wrong. <laughs> well, this is an amazing, amazing time. Somebody put something up on uh, Instagram today. And it was uh, a quote from the 1800s about an ancient philosopher uh, or an ancient scholar, rather, would give his life for the information that's available to the common schoolboy today. And this mm-hmm. is from a quote from 1888. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's so, <laughs> yeah. Which is nothing now compared to what we can do. Yeah. I think there was another statistic. And again, it's unclear how do you measure this. But in terms of written information, at least, one newspaper has yet yeah, more written information in it than um, you know a, t- a typical person in the 1700s would be exposed to for their entire lifetime. I wonder what what was the natural predator of kangaroos because kangaroos are they're a native animal to Australia and if they didn't do you know there I, was a giant predator in New Zealand at least at one point in time it was called the host eagle mm-hmm. and it was an enormous eagle the biggest eagle they think that ever lived it had something like a 10 foot wingspan and they believe it even hunted people yeah. a huge huge eagle and uh it's a part of the i guess it's the maori it's a part of their um ancient mythology and they found out that it is actually a real animal wow, that was okay. somewhere around the 1400s was uh, made extinct 
through hunting? My understanding was in um, Australia before humans invaded. Um, Crocodiles. My understanding was that there was just no major predators for... Um, That's the, the Tasmanian of, the, tiger, the, large, the, the ty- thylacine. Yeah, they call that thing the Tasmanian yeah, tiger. That died um, during human, um, like, modern times. That's a crazy-looking picture. Look at its yeah. face. Look at that mouth on that thing. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But that, I believe those things died yeah, off in the extinct. 1930s. Said, I just typed this in here. This said that it's now extinct, but the dingo is probably the more closest-related mm, okay. predator they have. When did it die? Thylacine is now extinct. However, humans arrived in Australia at least 50,000 years ago and introduced the dingo about 5,000 years ago. Hmm. So maybe those things were eating tank- kangaroos. Well, the, the, a big part of um, kangaroos, I guess, would probably be catching them when they're not with their young, but they carry their young inside their body mm-hmm. in that pouch, which makes them different from any other kind of animal that would be prey because they can take care of their, their young and bounce away quickly. Well, this is why... So in terms of large mammals, humans um, killed every single type of large mammal other than kangaroos in Australia. I think there were kind of hundreds of different types originally. Oh, there's a bunch of different things other than kangaroos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what? um, Again, I don't know. Maybe Mm. giant koalas, let's say. Mm. Um, But, uh, yeah, and and my understanding was the reason for that was because they didn't have natural predators. Um, And so they just... Didn't know what to do with people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Which are, you know, have all of these, like, defensive mechanisms. Right. And also have wolves and coyotes and bears and all yeah, these different yeah, things yeah, that are exactly. chasing them down. Exactly. That's interesting, the, the concept of what's the most ethical thing to eat. Mm-hmm. I would think you would think it would be like mollusks. Okay, so that's, a, yeah. So I do think it's totally fine to eat anything. Well, what I say is I don't eat anything with a brain. Mm-hmm. So that means that oysters, mussels, clams, they're okay. Yeah. Um, so I got convinced... I didn't used to be like this. I got convinced by um, an advocate for it's called bivalve veganism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not doesn't make a big difference. I don't really like these things. I eat them occasionally, but you don't like um, like mussels? No, really? Yeah, no. Have you yeah. ever had linguine with mussels, like at a good Italian restaurant with a, a nice red sauce? Yeah, I mean, eat, so when they're good, they're fine, and when they're bad, they're really bad. Uh, well, that's, that's in that opinion. case with everything. No, some things when, sure. they're good, when they're good, they can gross be. hamburgers. I mean, you, you can get down the line. You know, you can rotten food. No, but like you know, good pizza is just amazing pizza. Or like, um, like I feel like my the very best muscles I'm like meh towards. Really? Yeah. Oh man, you need to go to a really good Italian restaurant. Yeah. But Have I you ever was... had linguine with clams? Do you like yeah, clams? Yeah, I think so. Again, I just feel I feel pretty indifferent about them. Oh, you're crazy. Yeah. You just need to go to a really good restaurant. You guys are eating in England, man. That's the problem. Yeah, England. They don't is... know how to make Italian food there. Yeah, that's, that is true. That's yeah. Good, great Indian food. I mean, there's a few people right now that are screaming in England, I make good Italian <laughs> food, you son of a bitch. I'm generalizing, and I'm aware I'm in, ignorant in saying that. Yeah, but look, I can't defend English cuisine. Oh, there's some great. Having been out to New York, San Francisco. Yeah. Well, London has some amazing restaurants now. London does, yeah. You know, I mean, but it was always the the generalized, stereotypical knock was that the food in England was terrible. Yeah. The first time I went there was pretty bad. It's often true. But yeah, yeah. with respect to what's the most ethical meat, I think it is a really interesting question because I think, you know, the debate on vegetarianism and so on is normally phrased as this either or thing. You're like not doing anything or just go vegetarian Mm -hmm. or vegan. Um, but I was interested in this question of just, yeah, well, supposing you only want to go halfway or of the different foodstuffs, like what are the, um, 
what are the ones that are going to do the most in terms of animal welfare if you cut them out? Because mm. most people, when they go halfway to being vegetarian, they might cut out red meat, so they right. might cut beef and so on. And I actually think that's, if you care at least about the animal welfare side of things, I think that's just wrong. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is, uh, one is the specter, the amount of suffering that the animal has in the course of its life, where the way that chickens are currently treated, if you look at just average, um, and again, we're talking about most chickens that are you're talking about factory farming factory conditions. Factory farming conditions, which is well over 90%, I think like 99% of chickens that are eaten um, are in these conditions. Their lives are just, I think they're the worst off creatures in the planet, basically. Um, and cows, I think, often don't have great lives, um, but it's just nothing really compared to chickens. And I think pork is similar, like pigs also have really terrible lives. Um, whereas, yeah, larger animals, um, cows, uh, sheep, just in general, aren't being treated as badly. And then the second question is, um, how many animals are you affecting? Where if you um, consume a steak or something, that's like a thousandth of a cow on average. Whereas you can easily eat kind of half a chicken. And that's a factor that people normally don't consider as well. And obviously, maybe you value a cow's life greater than a chicken's life or something. We do in some strange way. Yeah, There's I a mean, hierarchy that humans yeah, we have, have almost inherently, or at least we do in the Western world. Yeah, I think it's really hard to know. Like, this is one of the hardest philosophical questions I've thought about for ages and have eventually given up on is you've got an unhappy cow day, an unhappy chicken day, which is which is worse. How do you weight those two? You can't, or um, an unhappy fish. People have very few feelings well. about fish. Yeah, Like, I mean, you see in, a dead fish, people don't feel the same way they feel if you see a dead lamb. Yeah. But in general, I've become more sympathetic. I think there's a bias where, you know, we tend to sympathize more with things that look like us. Right. Fish have these weird, you know, look, kind of look alien. They don't take care of their young, too. That's lambs of, lambs differentiation. Of cute. Yeah. And so over time, I've definitely become a lot more sympathetic to taking um, suffering of chickens and fish fairly seriously. Um, and I, but I think when you combine these two factors of, um, again, yeah, fish, I think, except that there's less good information on them, but um, I think this might be in the category. But certainly chickens and pigs compared to beef. I actually think if you just want to kill, like take out most of the suffering from your diet, um, removing chickens, um, caged, en caged eggs, I think in the US actually that's basically all eggs unless you throw them yourself, um, and pork, I think you're removing, and maybe fish, I think you're removing most of the suffering from your diet, vastly more than when it comes to beef or milk yeah well in terms of like the amount of individuals that get impacted you're right in that one cow can feed much more people obviously than one chicken can so if you're taking one life mm -hmm. in that form what disturbs me most about factory farming well for one thing disturbs me it sort of existed and then i found out about it and it was already there yeah and yeah. i had been eating it all yeah, along yeah, yeah. and that shocked me in that i was set st i remember sitting back I'd watched some documentary on it, and I remember sitting back thinking, like, this happened because we weren't paying attention. Because I was a grown man yeah, when I found yeah. out about it. I hadn't been paying attention. And when you leave people alone and you say, hey, man, do you think you can get us some beef? The guy's like, yeah, 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 I got it. Don't worry about yeah, it. You yeah, just yeah. stay over there in your city. Yeah, exactly. I'll take care of it over here, out of sight, out of mind. And then when we find out about it, and then you hear about, in America, we have these things called ag-gag laws. I'm sure you're yeah, aware of those. It, unbelievable. Like, no possible justification for this. Terrifying. It's just because, so, yeah, where it's... They're hiding information. Hiding information, yeah. 
And there was a case where there was an animal welfare activist goes into a factory farm is filming instances of animal cruelty um, for a kind of documentary film that gets presented. And she got tried and had to go to prison for not intervening in the animal cruelty. <laughs> That was just happening all the time, and she was the person just actually documenting. So she got it. tried for not intervening, not stopping the animal cruelty. Yeah, which That's is happening insane. all of the time. I thought she would get tried for violating the ag gag laws. No, well, she was because um, it's an invasion of privacy on a corporation was, and corporate was, secrets. Yeah, I think it was prior to the ag gag laws. No. Oh, so they found another way to try her, to discourage. That's that. Yeah. So that's so insane. But the thing you said earlier, which when you were talking about the ways in which humans are broken, mm. I think if you just look at, yeah, suffering that humans are inflicting now, the thing that's really worrying is how mechanized it's become. So if imagine if, yeah, there was even, let's say, a chicken just right here in front of us. And I just for fun, just kick it. <laughs> um, people would be outraged. Um, people would just think I'm this kind of despicable person. And that's the natural reaction because I'm just caught inflicting unnecessary suffering um, right. on this creature. But then you can just modify the circumstances such that this natural emotional reaction of sympathy just fades away. Where now it's this huge warehouse and it's not just one chicken, it's hundreds of thousands of chicken. Yeah. And it's all mechanized and it's all taken out of sight. Um, suddenly, yeah. I mean, Joseph Stalin said, yeah, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Um, and but I don't, he, I don't again, generally Joseph like to Stahl. take no, I don't life either. lessons yeah. from Stalin, but um, uh, it's an extremely good quote. But he was talking um, about humans. And, you know, any death of a human will be tragedy. And when, when they get to large numbers, it's sort of it's very difficult to calculate because it's hard for people to understand or grasp the concept of a million people dying yeah, in a war. Yeah, exactly. What's bizarre about factory farming is that it's all kind of done behind these warehouse walls. Yeah, exactly. It's all undercover, and it's all incredibly common, and it's all not discussed. Yeah, like if absolutely. This is, like if well, a war is happening, I was going to say if a war is happening and 100,000 people a month are dying, we're discussing you know, how do we mitigate this? How do we stop this? How do, yeah. we, how do we bring peace? There's so few people mm -hmm. wondering how to stop chicken suffering. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because we've looked into this, and one of the reasons it's such a priority area is just the amount of just philanthropic money going into this. When it's the focus is really on factory farming, not you know stray dogs and so on. It's in the low tens of millions of dollars it's, of trying to stop factory farming. Yeah, or trying to mitigate it. Well, um, what is the solution? Like other than going vegeta vegetarian. When have we reached this point, so, sort of like unmanageable point, where the population centers like Los Angeles, New York, whatever, that don't grow their own food have gotten so massive mm -hmm. that in order to fuel these people with food, especially with with animal protein, you almost have to have these setups. Yeah, I mean, I think if you've got um, the constraint of animal protein, I mean, I think the answer is probably still no. But the other thing is, you just don't need that constraint of animal protein. Um, we eat radically more meat than we did, um, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, far more than we need to have a healthy diet. I mean, I've been vegetarian 11 years. Um, do you eat eggs, though, free-range eggs? Um, yeah, I do. Um, That's a, for me, I don't understand why people don't. Like, when PETA had that whole campaign about eggs or chickens, periods, I'm like, look, 
I can understand you not wanting to eat factory farm chickens' eggs mm -hmm. because these animals are tortured and they're yeah, confined yeah, yeah. and it's horrific, but you can definitely find eggs, and I have my own chickens. Mm -hmm. I have 22 chickens, and they lay eggs, and I eat their eggs all the time, and I ate five of them this morning. They're great. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about those eggs, there's it's like there's no suffering. The eggs come out. They yeah, don't yeah. become a chicken. You take them. It's free. And those chickens... By the way, they're a bunch of little murderers. They run around my yard. I've seen them eat a, a mouse before. If they found a, a bird that was down, like a like a, a nesting bird that had fallen out of a, a nest, they'll fuck that bird up. Yeah, they yeah. Eat anything that's on the ground. The only thing they don't seem to like, they don't seem to like slugs. Okay, you've tried to feed them slugs. No, they eat them. We pick up a, like a rock in my garden. I'll pick up a rock, and the mm -hmm. chickens come over and just jack anything that's under the rock. They figured out that when I lift up the rock, there's bugs under there. Mm -hmm. They're little murderers, man. They're mm -hmm. ruthless. They don't like slugs. Okay. They, they try them, and then they, they, they yep. start shaking their head. They try to get the slime off their beak, and they kind of freak out. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's this big, um, within the animal welfare um, kind of animal activists, there's this actually quite big divide between... Um, you could call them maybe the abolitionists on one side and the mm -hmm. welfareists. And the abolitionists' view is just, you know, animal. the way we treat animals is like how we treated slaves. Um, right. This is just, this is kind of the equivalent of slavery of our time. And the only, and you know, imagine if we'd been in um, slave-owning Americans had like, hey, well, why don't we just cut down the number of slaves right. we hold? It's just not doing enough moral seriousness. Right. Um, the welfareists, um, in contrast, are more like, look, almost all the suffering, if we're going to quantify the suffering of the way humans treat animals now, 99% of it comes from factory farms. If we could eliminate that factory farms, sure, there's still something left. It's not like, even if you agree, we're not at the kind of final stage, but this is the, where the vast majority of both the animals used and the worst conditions are. And so the welfareists would instead say, look, let's really just focus all of our attention on this. And things like free range eggs or circuses or um, fur are just, these are just really kind of not the main issue. And, um, you know, I'm naturally most sympathetic to the kind of welfareist perspective. Um, but it is interesting of the animal. I know lots of people who were in the welfareist camp and then moved to the abolitionist camp on welfareist grounds, where the kind of worry is just that if you're just trying to get people to do a little, then you're not actually going to move them at all. Mm. Um, whereas you need to have this hard moral line and then people kind of see the integrity of that and follow it. Well, it seems to me that there's a slippery slope when agriculture and civilization were introduced that someone wasn't going to exploit it to the nth degree mm -hmm. and figure, well, it's just got to be a better way to squeeze money out of this situation. Mm -hmm. And then next thing you know, you've got these factory pig farms. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure yeah. you've seen those the horrific one where they fly the drone over the lakes of pig piss yeah, and pig yeah, shit. Yeah. Absolutely and that these animals are living just completely confined where they can't even turn around yeah, and they're just yeah. pumping them up with whatever the fuck they need to keep them alive until yeah. they get to a certain point where they can kill them. Yeah. And it is through people. So many people would be absolutely, if that was right there in front of them, right. they would be sickened. Yeah. Um, hence the ag gag laws. Yeah. Hence in order the to keep laws. that money coming in, they have to keep people in the dark of these situations. Yeah. And unless they go online and seek it out and, and watch these videos, yeah. And those and, videos are very polarizing, too, because, well, you know, when you come to a lot of these animal rights organizations, uh, a lot of them have roots in the animal liberation organization, which doesn't mm -hmm. even believe that you should have pets. Mm -hmm. they, they think that your pets are so, all, you know, prisoners. Yeah, it's so interesting. Going back to Peter Singer, where um, you said the animal liberation, which was the name of his book, which was kind of text, you know, founding text for 
what became the animal rights movement. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that Singer doesn't believe in rights. He's a consequentialist. He's a utilitarian. Never used the word once. So what he his approach would just be thinking, yeah, what's going to do the most good? Um, and on the pets question, um, you know, I don't want to speak for Peter, but he's going to think, well, if they have a good life and they're well treated, just seems fine. Yeah, and I again, mean, he'd want to say like the focus should be on suffering. Um, yeah, on the vast magnitudes of suffering that go right. on factory farms. That's priority one, two, three, and four. Yeah, I have a hard time even entertaining the conversation that there's something wrong with a healthy pet dog. Mm -hmm. Like, that dog loves the owner, the people love the dog, and the dog has obviously gone through an incredible evolutionary process where it's gone from being a wolf to being a chihuahua. Like, if you think that thing should be out fending for itself in the forest, boy, you're dooming that little fucker to death. Yeah, like, I mean, well, the question, the dog... In all of these cases, like the animals wouldn't exist otherwise, and that and they wouldn't exist from of... people. I mean, if it wasn't for people breeding them and making them this bulldog, yeah. like this thing that can't even hardly breathe and walks with a waddle, like we're weird that yeah, we've done yeah. that in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I find especially the pets, like dogs that have, um, yeah, like yeah. difficulty breathing, genetic diseases. I find it kind of gross. Like it is gross a, that we've kind of done that. I've got one. But, what type of dog do you have? It's a Shibu Inu English Bulldog mix. This okay. poor little fucker. He's yeah. a mess. We got him as a puppy, you know, because he, he was cute and, you know, he just seemed like he needed a home and we took him in. Yeah. But, God, he's all messed up, man. I mean, I've had him for 10 years. He's had all these surgeries and can't walk right. His hips oh, yeah, are all fucked same. up. It's just like they breed him to the point where he's half Shibu Inu, so he's actually better off than a lot of bulldogs because mm -hmm. he's 12 now. I don't think bulldogs usually live that long. Yeah, I don't okay. think they live to that age, but he's got all sorts of like difficulties. He can't really run. Yeah. You know, he's lazy, he just likes to lay down, snore. But the, the poor little things, like if you look at an actual, like legit English bulldog with their flat faces, like mm -hmm. they have massive respiratory problems. And mm -hmm. Yeah. So I find that like it's crazy. Yeah, the fact that we like engage in this product, yeah. process of bleeding them kind of weird. But then like, yeah, if you're going to have a dog and look after it well, like, it's not the problem, right? It's definitely, yeah. yeah. And so there's this question of just, if you're talking about that, are you just, un like, distracting from the main issue, which is factory right. farming? Well, it, it also again, seems to me that, that this is just like everything else in life. Like, as you go down the rabbit hole and you look at it deeper and deeper and deeper, you go, God, this is a complicated <laughs> issue. You know, how do you get all these people to stop eating so much meat so that you don't need so much meat, yeah, so yeah. that you don't need factory farming and, and have to get people aware of what is the consequences of, you know, going and buying a chicken sandwich? Well, mm -hmm. do you know where that chicken came from? Mm -hmm. Here, check this out. Are you happy now? Yep. And a lot of people, they watch those videos and then they go, ah, fuck it. I'm hungry. I yeah. want a chicken sandwich. Yeah, lots of people do. I do think, though, like, so in the UK, at least, if you buy a pack of cigarettes, you get these pictures on them showing kind of what this is mm. what your lungs will look like if you smoke 20 a day and there's warnings and things. Yeah, that doesn't stop people in some weird way. I mean, people are addicted to cigarettes. I think it yeah. must have some Im impact. But I wonder I if, it does. if you could buy a pack of chicken and it would say, well, this is mm. this is this field of um, piss and shit that this chicken grew up in. Right. Like um, the opposite of an ag-gag law. Like force it in your face. Yeah, because look, I mean, you're, just, you're just giving the consumer more information. How right. can that be bad? Like if you went to the butcher shop went to the butcher section of the grocery store, mm -hmm. and there was videos that were playing constantly yep. above yep. the packaged meat that showed these animals getting like a piston through the head yep. and hanging yep. by their ankles and getting bled out while they bucked yep. and yep. kicked. Yep. 
I wonder how many people. That would be a fucking ex- yeah. exciting. Conveyor belt of baby male chicks falling into this. Um, yeah, or getting ground up. Yeah. Ground up. yeah. That would be a fascinating psychological examination to yeah. watch people walk up to that butcher shop and see those videos playing. Like, if that became the law. Yeah. I mean, wow. there's, a, there's an amazing, there was a comedy show, a sketch show that um, did uh, something kind of similar, which was, you know, they would go up to the butcher's counter and say, okay, I'd like some sausages. They go, okay, pick up a little baby pig and put it into this big this box. It's obviously fake. And just, like, do this action and sausages would come out. Obviously, they're not actually killing Right, the pig. right, right. Um, and people would be outraged. Like, no, don't do that. Like, and it's like, oh. do you know where, did you not know where um, pork comes yeah. from? So, yeah, that's the thing that's just amazing is how people can call themselves animal lovers. Well, there's also people that love animals and eat meat. Like they'll yep. eat steak and then get mad at people for hunting animals. I've, I've experienced that personally. Yeah. This is a good case, though, of the salience issue where... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so I uh, like oppose hunting. I think it's bad for the animal that gets killed. But the thing is, it's just so salient compared to factory farming. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, would I prefer that people hunt meat rather than like factory farming? It's like, of course. And like, you do the math. It's like, not only am I behind that, I'm behind that like a thousand times. Mm-hmm. But again, the hunting is just, it's this very salient thing. And, you know, in the UK, huge up about fox hunting and so on. But that's a different thing because but, fox hunting, you're not, you're not eating it. No, I mean, it's supposed to be for, yeah, it's kind of like vermin control. Yeah, and there's but, some there's some logic to that, that if you don't have natural predators, you need to figure out some way to control certain populations that can mm-hmm. be damaging, like fox yeah. or in some places black bear. And there's a bunch of different animals that you do have to control because they don't have a, they don't have a natural predator. Yeah, yeah. But the thing that's, like, incredible for me is just how people can have, yeah, such long views on that and such long views on hunting. And then just eat meat. No reaction to factory farming. Yeah, they just don't see it. You and know, it, it is just because we are very manipulable as humans mm-hmm. in terms of our um, moral reactions. And well, there's that's also really worrying. There's certain. Far with that. Yeah, but there's certain animals that you have to control the populations of, especially invasive species like pigs. Like wild pigs are a huge problem in America and mm-hmm. getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. I know you guys don't have them as much in the UK. But in, in America, um, particularly in Texas and now in Northern California, there were just massive, massive populations of wild pigs. And they give birth two to three times a year. And they can give birth to as many as three to six uh, mm-hmm. piglets in each. Li- and they just caught. And then six months later, those piglets are ready to give birth. Mm-hmm. So they just boom, 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 boom. And if you don't control their populations, yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? Are you going to like let wolves loose to control their populations? Yeah, I mean, they yeah. have to figure out how to do it. And so they've taken to a lot of the same strategies that they're using in New Zealand that we mm-hmm. talked about with stags. Mm-hmm. In Texas, they have these helicopter hunts where they fly around in helicopters and just gun down hundreds and hundreds of these pigs. Mm-hmm. And they do wind up donating that, the, the meat of that pigs to mm-hmm. homeless shelters and people who need it. And it is, it's actually very nutritious and very healthy and very mm-hmm. good for you. And that's probably way better than buying pig from someone who's raised it in some horrific factory yeah, farming yeah, environment. But yeah. for people that just want the animals to live and be unchallenged and un, you know, unpreyed yeah. upon, I get it. Yeah. It all seems very disturbing. But you got to control the populations because you're not going to have any agriculture. Yeah. I mean, you, they're going to find out where the farms are, and they tear them apart at mm-hmm. night. They're nocturnal animals. You can't stop them with fences. They go right through fences. They're huge, huge animals. 
Wild pigs create millions of dollars of damage in Riverside County. Yeah, wow, yeah, that's I didn't know about this as well. that's like Riverside County is like super populated. But this is a it's a enormous enormous problem in this country. And by the way, when you look at that animal, what's really cool about pigs mm -hmm. is that they morph. When you see that animal, it looks very different than a domestic pig, but mm -hmm. it's exact same animal. They're mm -hmm. all the same genus. It's called Suscrofa. And when you take a, a domestic pig and you let it go, within months, within months of being free, their hair starts to change, their snout starts to elongate, their tusks start to grow longer. They, once they become feral, once they realize they have to fend for themselves, there's an actual physiological change in the structure of their body. Wow, so interesting. It's fascinating. So interesting. It's really crazy. Their hair gets thicker. They develop a, a thicker plate, the males do, mm -hmm. around the chest to protect themselves mm -hmm. from other males when they fight. It's bizarre. So those wild pigs that people see, yeah. there's a bunch of different kinds. Some of them are Russian boars. They're wild, you know, yeah, different yeah. different kind of uh, pig. But ultimately, they all interbreed with each other. Yeah, yeah. This is so interesting as well, coming back to the question of what's natural and not and so on. And yeah. people often think this about meat that they're eating as well, where if you look at the, you know, chickens can barely stand because they've been so engineered to have mm -hmm. these huge breasts. You know, the yeah. pigs that you're talking about are, like, are not meant to be pink, right? to be brown. Um, you know, cows just, can you really imagine a cow like evolving in the wild? Like, mm. of, co of course not. All of these things are incredibly unnatural through thousands of years of uh, selective breeding. Well, cows don't live in the wild, but here's where it gets interesting. In Australia, when cows have gotten wild, mm -hmm. they've gotten loose from these uh, pens that people held them in, and then they become what they call scrub bulls. Mm -hmm. And they're out there in the wild, and people hunt them like they would hunt a wild animal, and they're very wary, and they run from people. They see people, they get the fuck out of there, and yeah, the yeah, bulls yeah. are incredibly violent. Like the, the male cows, these scrub bulls, are some of the most dangerous things to hunt in the world mm -hmm. because they'll actively chase you down, like a bull. Like, you know, you, if you see, like, people trying to ride bulls, how bulls kick and, you know, they go crazy. Well, these scrub bulls are essentially those bulls, mm -hmm. but many, many, many generations wild. So they're feral bulls. Yeah. And so they, they sort of were bred to be this domestic thing, and then they got loose, and then they became this wild thing. Mm -hmm. And so they look slightly different. Like, that's what they look like. That's wow, a scrub okay. bull. So they're becoming slowly over the course of many generations, yeah, okay. a more wild animal. So they, they have these hunts for these scrubbles. And if that thing sees you, by the way, that crazy looking bull, they will fuck you up. <laughs> They're some of the most dangerous animals that you can encounter in the wild, apparently. But uh, I have yeah, a buddy, they, my friend Adam. Yeah, they look different. Like, look at the hump on its back. Yeah. I mean, that looks like some crazy wild African animal. And it was originally, a long time ago, a regular domestic cow. That's really and yeah, so it shows just how artificially oh, yeah. they are. If that's just if that's the sort of changes you get over just the course of a few generations. Natural selection natural as opposed selection. to what we're doing with dogs. Yeah. You know, when we create a yeah. bulldog. I mean that is those are the animals that have survived mm -hmm. and and they've they, they change their coloration, their physical structure looks different in yeah. you know, over many, many generations. It's quite quite fascinating. So yeah. It's like we have to figure out where we stand, I think, in terms of the entire ecosystem, mm -hmm. because we're certainly not viable. We can't go out there and live amongst those animals. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we won't. We'll get killed. Mm -hmm. We'll get eaten. 
We, so we have to stay inside of our homes. We have to stay inside of our environments. And then we have to figure out like how much of an impact should we have on those things around us? Should we be like all the other animals, like all like the wolves and all these other animals, the coyotes that have this impact on the environment? Or should we try to lessen our footprint to the point where we have zero impact on any of the animals and we just live inside of these sustained areas that grow vegetation? It's um It's an interesting question because... Those animals prey on each other. They all do. And like, w should we be a part of that? Should we take place? Should we take part in that? I definitely don't think we should factory farm. Yeah. I definitely think that that was a, a huge mistake. And I also definitely think that that huge mistake is what led us to be able to have these gigantic cities. Mm -hmm. And I don't think necessarily cities are a huge mistake, but man, trying to figure out how to feed those people in the way that they're accustomed to eating mm. right now, there's a, that's a, it's a yeah. massive, Although the massive thing battle. Yeah, but I think the kind of question of large populations and how do you feed them, that massively tells in favor of lower meat consumption or vegetarianism. Sure. Because you've got this 10 to 1 rule where right. to create a calorie of meat, you need 10 calories or more of, um, of grain or mm. soy or whatever you're feeding them. Unless you're so, dealing with people just consuming wild pigs. Yeah, wild pigs or kangaroos or something where that, that yeah. there are exceptions to that as well. But but I don't know, think there's enough to feed people though. That's the other thing. Yeah. There's 350 million people in this country. There's not 350 million wild pigs. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it means that in the future, just um, as populations get larger, then yeah, again, we're just going to need to use um, land and energy more efficiently. So this is like yet another argument in favor of um, plant-based diets. Yeah. Well, in America, at least, the majority, the vast majority of the money that goes towards conservation, towards keeping wild animal populations high, is actually from hunting. Hmm. It's a real strange contradiction that makes people really uncomfortable once they find it out, is that the vast majority of the money that goes to protect habitat, to preserve wild lands, mm -hmm. um, it, it comes from hunting. In fact, hunters voluntarily agreed, I believe it was in the 1930s, to give up 10%. I think I want to make sure that number's mm -hmm. right too, but of the the money in in terms of the percentage of sales of hunting equipment mm -hmm. goes directly towards conservation. There's yeah, all these yeah, there's all these different um, entities like the Rocky Mountain Elk Federation that have repopulated elk into all these areas, mm -hmm. but done so specifically so that people can hunt them. Mm -hmm. So it gets really weird. Yeah, yeah. So it's okay. like it might be an uneasy alliance between. In, in many people's yeah, eyes, but, but they're the ones that are giving up the money. The money is not coming from altruistic organizations that just want to preserve these animals so that they can exist in the mm -hmm. free, wild way that they did yeah, before yeah. people got here. But there's more white-tailed deer in America today than when Columbus landed. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, okay, And that's all because of conservation, yeah. because of hunting. So it's it, yeah, another it, one of those weird things where when you look at the me, whole picture. Yeah, there's a solution that I've heard suggested for... Um, reducing species loss, which is to um, allow basically ownership of species. So you mm. could copyright the panda. Oh. Um, now, isn't this a weird idea? But the idea is that now suddenly, like at the moment, no one has a financial incentive right. um, to ensure that pandas don't go extinct. Whereas um, if someone uh, were able to say, no, I have, if you want to use a panda in video or so on, you have to... Um, pay the owner. The yeah. Plan. Well, I'm very um, uncomfortable with the idea of this uh, laboratory-created meat 
as to mm. where that's going to go. Why are you uncomfortable? I'm very well positive about it. I mean, the science is kind of tricky, but... I'm positive I'm, about it in that it's not going to be any animal suffering. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fascinating in that regard. But what's going to happen if we find out that... Well, there's a bunch of different things, right? First of all, we have to make sure it's healthy. We have to make sure that it doesn't cause some yeah. sort of a weird disease because you're not eating something that's living and moving. And when yeah. you eat sedentary creatures, maybe there's some sort of an adverse impact on our biology. Because I think there's an adverse impact when you eat protein from an animal that is, like, weak and sick. And they've actually shown that um, there was a, a, a study that Dr. Rhonda Patrick sent me recently that showed that animals that eat older, sick animals... Um, d die quicker, mm -hmm. they have a shorter lifespan, and and exhibit less health characteristics, mm -hmm. I believe it was, than animals that ate younger animals. And there seems to be some sort of a direct correlation between eating younger healthy things and having uh, a positive healthy impact on, on physical life itself, the animal that's consuming it. And that if you're eating something that never existed in the first place, like... What, unless they're able to recreate the characteristics of a healthy animal, like a strong muscle tissue, yeah. like maybe they could do that with electrical impulses, like some sort of electrical muscle st muscular stimulation. Yeah, I don't see why that would be a problem. I mean, at least you'd think you'd be able to get past that. In fact, where, you know, the meat that we've currently got, stuffed full of antibiotics, um, you know, there's uh, often um, viruses that... or. Yeah, sure. viruses that kind of arise. Swine flu, avian flu. Avian flu, exactly. You could avoid all of them. With all, that, all that stuff comes from factory farming. And in fact, yeah. And in fact, then, once you start to engineer um, meat, perhaps you could engineer exactly the healthiest sort of meat. You've got so mm. much more control um, over the product. That would be crazy. And so, of course, you've got to, yeah, with the development of any new technology, you've got to be uh, cautious about it. Um, but ultimately... It seems like we should be able to get to the point where we have tastier, cheaper, more healthy meat um, that uses far less carbon, like has far less carbon dioxide as a side effect, uses far less land area. It's going to be better than every single way. Mm. And I mean, I think the science, it does seem hard in particular just to get the costs down low enough. Well, I think they've got um, it down pretty low. I mean, there was a recent article about it where they were talking about the original one was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and now they've got it down to like 20 bucks. Yeah, I think that was misleading, actually. Was it? Yeah. It's a shame. Like, it seemed to me like there's been a little bit too much hype around in Vito mm -hmm. Meat, um, where, yeah, there's some stories of, like, the costs are radically going down. Right. Whereas... Um, it's definitely much slower than that. I think it's definitely still decades away. Mm, um, decades? Even, yeah, I think so. Really? Yeah. What, may, what so. makes you think decades? So the argument is that the currently the... So it depends on what you're talking about. Um, like egg white, I think, is pretty easy comparatively. Um, milk is comparatively easy, but structured meat. So, you know, steak or chicken that has a structure. Um, that's, I think, very difficult. And I think apparently part of what... The the difficulty is there's a certain solution that you need to grow this meat in, and that solution is currently very expensive. Mm. Um, and the key part of the cost, um, so even once we get to the point of um, being able to develop this, getting the cost down low enough so it's, it's competitive, you're going to need to take this um, fluid that currently costs, I don't know how much, but like $1,000 a litre, get it down to the cost of soda. And 
we don't cl- currently, it seems, have like a clear kind of scientific. It would be uh, the ultimate conundrum that. if they found out that the only way to make that fluid and to make it financially viable was to make it out of ground up pets <laughs> well, that get killed anyway, euthanized pets. So, at, like, would people be upset if they took euthanized pets and they used it to make the fluid to grow the artificial meat in, or would they prefer those euthanized pets just be cremated? So. At the moment, that fluid does have to come from animals. What? There's a certain part of it that um, is animal-based. I was just guessing. Um, so it's not exactly um, ground-up pets. Um, but puppy it's brains. Sti- it's still Only puppy brains. As I understand, it's still currently not vegan. Um, but it's interesting. I think it's going to change. I mean, I do think, given the level of just moral cognitive dissonance that's currently going on between mm-hmm. people's attitudes to animals, pets, any animal they can see, and consumption of meat... Once you take self-interest out of the equation, once you've got meat that is cheaper and just as tasty, I think just everyone's going to switch. And then within a generation, people will look back at the current generation and just think, how did anyone ever engage in such um, abominable activity as factory farmed meat? Yeah, well, it's probably one of the darkest things that we as a civilized humanity do. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you think about other than war, which is obviously the most horrific thing, or one of the most horrific things. I mean, it's arguable that in terms of suffering, it's the next thing because it's, I mean, it has to be that it is the next thing, right? Yeah. I mean, so, other than poisoning people for profit, you know, other than companies that have uh, polluted environments that have wound up poisoning people. Yeah. So, in terms of animals, so 50 billion animals are killed every year for human consumption worldwide. Worldwide. Yeah. Most of them have kind of short lives. So, uh, Layer no broiler hens have six week lives. That's crazy. Yeah, six weeks. Six weeks. So from the time they're incubated and to the time they're in an oven, six weeks. That's that. Yeah, and that's I think that nuts. the point at which they die is the, that the highlight of their life, in my view, because um, their life is just filled with suffering. And uh, so that means any at any one time, there's seven billion animals in factory farms right now. Living, basically being tortured for the entirety of their short lives. So the entire population of the human race. It's basically one to one. Yeah. Wow. At any one time. Isn't it nuts that that's less than 100 years old? Yeah, much less than that. Less than 50, 50 years old, really. That's fucking... Who's the family. first crazy asshole that jammed those chickens into those little cages? Henry Field, I think. That's so, the guy? Is that his name? So he... Fascinating. Rise of the Free Marketeers. Um... So back in the 50s, I'm going going to go on a digression, but it's not as bad as Infinity, I promise you. That's all right. They're all awesome. (laughs) Um, So back in the 50s, um, free market economics was just completely dead. It was just not a mainstream idea at all within academic economics. But it really rose to prominence across the end of the 60s, certainly the 70s, and then Thatcher and Reagan getting in power. Huge um, uptake in this intellectual movement. And so the question is kind of where did it... Um, come from, and it was actually very significantly driven by a small number of people um, in the 50s and early 60s, like very deliberately saying, okay, I want, we want this ideology to become really dominant. And one of the most important first organizations was the Institute for Economic Affairs, based in London, a think tank. Um, and it was funded by the person who brought factory farm chicken to Britain. Whoa. <laughs> so... Um, it's weird because I promote this idea of um, earning to give as something that you know young people should consider, not as the only thing they should do, but as one of many things they should do. 
uh, uh, can, should consider doing. If you want to do good, you could go and like directly have an impact. But there is also another option, which is doing something you're really passionate about that maybe has less of a direct impact, earn a lot, and donate um, what you're making, uh, at least a significant part of that, to the things you think are most important. And then I think of this, I think it's Henry Fisher, sorry. Um, this is like this most perverse instantiation of that, where um, the guy went and became a factory farming entrepreneur, basically on earning to give grounds. Jesus Christ. And so, uh, Isn't that just so indicative of how humans are so contradictory? We're so complex and so strange mm -hmm. in that we, we find all these justifications for all these bizarre behaviors. And then we, we we're never like totally pure. Like there's so many so many people that are so that get, like I, this is the terrible example, but it's the one I use all the time. Bill Cosby made so many people laugh, mm -hmm. and he raped about a hundred mm -hmm. or whatever yeah, yeah. allegedly. You know, like he was helping and putting out so much love to so many people, and then being fucking evil yeah, yeah, to yeah. a bunch of people that he drugged. Yeah, or it's like just, yeah that this this exists this. Duality that they yeah think about Nazi Germany think about the number of people who were involved in the Holocaust who loved their children loved and their then... children and if you talk to them you would have had a, like a great conversation they would have been very caring and so on <sighs> this is I mean yeah it's a very powerful idea um, the banality of evil um, how the events phase um, where yeah the worst crimes committed are not because people are bad it's because uh, not bad or evil in the way that you think James Bond villain like this person's plotting something. It's just because they have some goal that is some goal on which they are indifferent to suffering and they cause that as a side effect. And so it's the same. And if you ask people, do you want animals to suffer horrifically in factory farms? They'll say, no, of course not. It's just that I don't care. Casualties of war. Exactly. And casualties of civilization. Yeah. Um, and the same insight, actually, when we talk about AI as well, is, um, you know, sometimes in the media people say, oh, the worry about AI is a Terminator is going to want to kill humans. But that's not the worry at all. The idea, or when you think about Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, again, it's just having some other entity that has goals on which you're just not very important. Right. Um, and that means that, yeah. Well, um, and they're also going to judge us. Effect, I yeah. mean, if they are intelligent and they are superior to us, they're going to judge us based on the entire whole of our behavior. And they're going to go, look at this messy species. This fucking species is crazy. Yeah. Elon Musk, Musk has my most terrifying quote. Uh, he, uh, his quote is the most terrifying to me, that he thinks that with AI we are summoning the demon. Summoning the demon, yeah. I love that quote. Yeah. It's just like... I mean, I worry, yeah. Like, I think a lot of the media attention around AI is like has been really unfortunate because it suggests like it's coming next year and it's gonna control it's like the demon I think anthropomorphizes right. it more than is necessary and so on. Sort of. I think But if it's ultimate goals, the extinction yeah. of the human race, that's very demonic in our regard. Yeah. I mean it's more Indifferent. Yeah, indifferent. Um, sort of the way we but, think about mollusks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or the way we think of like, you know, mosquitoes or gorillas. Yeah. Or, like, mosquitoes are my favorite yeah. because vegans will slap mosquitoes. Oh, yeah. I mean, are, mosqui are mosquitoes sentient or not? Like, <laughs> They're alive. Yeah, but are they sent Like, I think clams and mollusks aren't sentient. Then insects and, like... I'm well, there's some sure. weird arguments about that, then. I mean, why not eat crickets? Because cricket 
protein is excellent. I've I had mean, cricket bars before. They're covered in chocolate. They taste really good. They're high protein. Yeah. I mean, many – I do know many people who do advocate um, for that. My view is just, like, if you're unsure, then play safe. Mm. Um, and you'd be eating a lot of crickets. Like, Yeah, um, but there's a lot of crickets out there to yeah. eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're growing them, like – You'll be hunting crickets with a tiny little spear. <laughs> I don't think that's how you do it. Yeah. You're a lot more brutal than that. I mean, I think factory farming for crickets would be a horrific institution. Yeah. You know, and you just, what would you do? Just fucking swarms of them and yeah, smash yeah. them down to a protein bar. Yeah. Um, I What I worry about is that, what is the current number of the amount of species that have ever existed that are now extinct? It's fucking huge. Oh, it's like 99.99% or something. Why not us? Why not us? Oh, yeah. And if I we mean, do give birth to artificial intelligence, if we are the caterpillar that gives birth to the butterfly yeah. that winds up taking over the world, some artificial butterfly. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that worries me is that, you know, it's AI is it's kind of its own thing. Um, and I think, you know, we do because it's like potentially extremely beneficial as well. And, right. Um, if it goes, even if it, supposing it goes well, then it's a huge thing. Like we should care about it, whether or not we're worried about the extinction risk, because it's, you know, one of the things, one of the rare cases I think where we can really see into the future and think, yes, this is going to be a transformative technology. We don't know when it's going to happen, but um, it's when, a, it does, def, when it does, yeah. it's going to be transformative, and it's going to be very powerful. And that means we should be, have some kind of careful thought about it. But it seems to me there's a, a variety of ways that the human race could kill itself now. So novel pathogens being one example. Large um, Hadron Collider. I mean, <laughs> so my colleague, uh, Toby, actually wrote a paper on the Large Hadron Collider because there was all this you know, talk about, oh, we could create black, black holes. holes and so on. And so he wrote an academic paper where he just talked about the risk analysis that they did. And they said, oh, the chance of the Large Hadron Collider creating a black hole or something else that's like really dangerous is 10 to the power negative 63. You know what that's not? Go on. Zero. It's well, not zero. Firstly, it's not zero. Those motherfuckers, they could have... What if they were... Well, we, but, the odds were really long. We didn't know. But the second thing also is that um, it's a, you shouldn't think that anything's 10 to the negative 63, really, unless you have very, very strong models behind right. it. Right. Because what's the chance that you just made some mistake in your calculation? <laughs> It's like, you know, maybe it's as low as one in a million. But oh. that, that mistake completely swamps the probability. Right. And so that was the point that he was making. Just statistical point saying, right. look, I'm not commenting on whether this is dangerous or not. It's just that you've made a mistake in your methodology um, with respect to your risk assessment. And so it was really funny because then he was there. This is very calm, sensible, um, you know, uh, philosopher from Oxford in a press meeting with a large island collider, surrounded by all the... Um, you know, uh, aluminium, like tin aluminum foil, foil tin foil hat people. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah um, aluminum foil. Um, aluminium. Hat. I love the way you guys say aluminum. I know. <laughs> apparently, I'm. I was so annoyed when I found this, but apparently, your your way is correct. And of course, ours, it is. We're American. Ours is the weird. No. How dare you? <sighs> Tire with an I, really. And then you start saying things like foyer, click. Oh, there's a nice click, click of people in the niche in the foyer. Oh, we say it's a niche it's and niche, clique. clique, foyer, yeah, yeah foyer, mm. yeah. Foyer. Foyer, so, we say foyer, though. Do people say foyer? So I've definitely heard foyer. They're, yeah. they're Walmart people. Uh, was it white I trash? Know, I think I, where are you from, originally? Where am I from? Yeah. New Jersey is where I was born. Interesting, because I thought it was a New York thing, but... Maybe. Maybe not. 
Maybe I, oh, I didn't really grow up there. Okay. Grew up all over the place, Boston yeah, okay. mostly. But yeah, but no, you do you do so many things wrong. It's very oh, distressing. How dare you. It's very distressing to me. As tell a you what we don't do. We don't do queens. You guys still have queens. I love the queen. Get out of here with that shit. She's still it's ridiculous. going. Ridiculous. It's so funny. Every I feel like every time I go for them. No, I think the queen is like hilarious. It's ridiculous. As a institution. Ooh, hello. <laughs> But that's her, that's her job. Her job waving. is to like wave in this very particular way. She doesn't even really way. wave. She just kind of rocks her hand back and forth. Yeah. Some sort of weird semi-Vulcan stance. Um, it's kind of funny, yeah, talking to especially uh, some of the kind of progressive um, friends I have in America. They're like, you've got a monarchy? Isn't this right. like, isn't everyone talking about it? But you guys like, think it's quaint. Yeah, we're just like, no, no one really thinks about it. <laughs> like, it's well, just she this doesn't kind of really have power, paper. right? But it's she still lives in a fucking castle. She lives in a castle. She if lives you do off the, the dime. But if you do an economic analysis, she brings in more money than she um, takes. Sort of, but she takes a lot. Isn't. She's sort of the anti-Will McCaskill, if you ask me. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the charities yeah. they support. She just gets all this free money, and that yeah. bitch just wears gold and shit and <laughs> drives around a limo. It's yeah. kind of ridiculous. So you could, yeah, you could definitely uh, get the same tourism benefits. People are mad that I say bitch. I'm not really meaning the word bitch. It's like all due respects folks just a figure of speech yeah, good. it's a humorous figure of speech okay well i appreciate the yeah i don't want to d- disparage your your ruler the, the, yeah appreciate the caveat such a strange ruler though kings yeah. and queens and prince charles it's, it's a really duck. it's a really funny part of british culture Especially, yeah. so it, i keep it's so funny because i keep i spend a lot of time in california but every time i come back it seems to be on some major event to do with royalty so one was the queen's birthday one was the event of the queen's being the longest ever running monarch one was her jubilee we don't and, know about that at all okay, we don't know yeah. of any of those things for you is um, these massive events well somewhere. it just means i come off the plane of being in america for a while and there's just pictures of the queen everywhere ah, like, i see okay yeah i'm definitely back in blighty now mm. now what's going on now anything crazy what's in happening the UK, now yeah huge news today what um well, for me as a Scot, um, Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister, um, so like the leader of Scotland, mm-hmm. uh, kind of think of Scotland to the UK as like state to federal, but it's a little bit different, um, announced there's going to be a second, she's planning a second Scottish referendum. So because, the, because Britain is taking itself out of the um, European, e- Union. European Union, where they expect is that announcement going to be made Tuesday, end of the month? But it's very shortly. Um, Scotland did not want to leave the EU, voted overwhelmingly in favor of remaining. So Scotland in general tends to lean a lot further left than the rest of the UK. Um, and previously had an independence referendum. It was very close, actually. 52% um, were in favor of um, staying part of the union, so they stayed part of the union. Um, there's now going to be a second referendum. At least this is what Nicola Sturgeon is saying. Um, and because of the Brexit vote, I think it's much more likely that Scotland will say, yes, we're going to leave. And then they remain part of the European Union, whereas the rest of Britain um, will leave. And it's mm. interesting for me because I was very kind of pro the union against independence in the previous um, referendum. Now I'm not sure. Now I think I probably am in fit because I think that Brexit was just such a bad decision um, that I kind of want them to be punished for it. And well, I think there's two things. One is that um, I think that now the case for Scotland being part of the EU but not part of Britain, the economic case kind of makes a bit more sense now than it did in the past. 
But then secondly, just, I would kind of worry that um, Britain leaves the EU, does that trigger kind of spark, like, you know, a much larger movement where the, just the EU as a project kind of breaks down. Um, and if it's the case, like, well, UK leaves the um, EU, but as a result, the country just falls apart. I think that would be so. Like you a big... wanted that to happen. You wanted England to fall apart to be punished for leaving the. I mean, EU? I think it would be like a very major signal. Like, I don't think it would. But be... what if they prospered? If and they were prospered. correct. Oh yeah, I mean, then if it is, if I do got, if I was convinced that um, the Brexit was the right decision, it was actually best for the world. Um, then I would change my mind. I don't know enough about it, but I do have a friend who's very knowledgeable, and he's from England, and he his take on it was. Um, the the real issue with the EU is that you're dealing with a bunch of people that aren't even elected. Mm-hmm. They're just sort of running the European Union. And he's like, and we don't have to tell you when you just look at history, what happens when people have a, a great amount of power and aren't even elected to their, their position. Mm. And you're allowed to just go to any part of the European Union and move into it, he's like, that was very detrimental and very bad in terms of the way uh, England's financial structure was set up. Mm-hmm. They were like, this could this would be detrimental to England, but beneficial to other places. And the idea was that we were supposed to accept the fact that it would be detrimental to England and beneficial to other countries. And many people in England did not want to do that. And in, yeah. doing, and in making that decision, they were thought to be xenophobic. They were thought to be, uh, you know, nationalistic yeah. and th- that it was racist. So I think there's, um, yeah, two things. I mean, one thing is, yeah, I don't like, um, yeah, I mean, so there's kind of two things. One, with respect to the kind of sovereignty question. Um, I mean, like, European Union, like, it has its own parliament and so on. You can vote on that. You each get a number of um, electors. And the reason, insofar as it's undemocratic, it's mainly just because people don't care. Like, the... Um, they turn- don't care well, as in, whether like, or not it's tur- democratic? But turn- as in voters. So turnout to um, elections for min- members of the European par- Parliament, the turnout is very low. I think it's like mm-hmm. 30% sort of thing. Maybe it'll be larger now that they realize the consequences of it. Well, I mean, there's not going to be any more because it's going it's it's to leave. But- implode? Well, Britain's leaving. so Britain's leaving. So you're no yeah. longer voting for members right. of the European Parliament. Um, so that's one question. And then, like, is this good or bad for Britain? Um, I think, like... The economic case is just incredibly strong for um, Europe being kind of good for um, Britain. The reason being just like free trade in general benefits both parties. You want to really maximize the amount of free trade. Um, But then the bigger thing for me is just like with respect to unity between countries is like the tail risk, risk of war, Mm -hmm. Um, which we don't really think about because we haven't had like a world war since... um, you know, the early mid 20th century. Um, but Europe had had like a long period of comparative peacefulness, like before the First World War. People thought, no, it's unthinkable given the level of interconnectedness between the countries that a world war could break out. And then two did. Right. Um, and so, and I think those sorts of things would be, you know, that's the tail outcome, but can be very bad indeed. Um, and we don't often think about it because it's just this occasional thing. And so that's why, in general, I'm just always more like not all, almost always more pro um closer relations between um between countries that makes sense to me um what he said makes sense to me as well though when he was saying essentially it was like think of the united states but now think of each state being a country you're allowed to elect a leader of that country but you can't elect a leader for the united states 
And so that's essentially how he was looking at the European Union. He yeah. was saying the European Union is they're, they're not elected, and yet they're controlling all these other elected officials and elected states all, all grouped together. Instead of thinking of them as like Germany and thinking mm -hmm. of them as England, think of them as states. Yeah. And think of the European Union and the officials, the people that are in control of the European Union aren't even elected. Yeah, so I mean you do elect the parliament. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's also the case that the analogy like the amount of power that Europe has over the remaining, the other countries is like you know, nothing like the amount of power um, the federal, of the, government, the has federal over gov mm -hmm. government has over the states. Like, um, you know, the UK sets, so the powers the EU has, one of the things that uh, got made lots of attention was bendy bananas. This what? got like a real focus area for people's ire. Bendy, what does that mean? So according to EU regulations, so EU has a single market. So that means you have just the same standards across all countries. Mm -hmm. um, but then that means you just ha start to ha say, have these standards over things like bananas. And so there was one EU regulation, which was that a banana couldn't be too bendy. Otherwise, it would count as a defective banana. And so people were like up in outrage about this. Like, how can the EU dictate to us um, the shape of our bananas? But I think the case is like a good one. Where it's like, it's really not that important. It's just a banana. Um, well, why do they even try is, to regulate it then? Well, it's because if you want to have like a free, like single market, you need to have um, common standards across. Um, and then but this does the just market like dictate those standards where like the bendy bananas don't sell and then the straighter ones do? Yeah, I mean, I don't know more of the detail about that. It seems to bananas, me like any time the government steps in on something as fucking ridiculous as the bend in the shape of a banana, yeah. you'd be like, hey, fuck face, why don't you go take care of poverty? <laughs> you know? Why don't you, why don't you handle something real instead yeah. of dealing with bendy bananas? Look, so on the bendy bananas case, yeah, I can't off the top of my head think of why you'd want to not allow the sale of But that's what people bananas. worry about when they worry about but, bureaucracy, when yeah. they worry about too much control. Yeah, so... Um, That's a great example, in, in fact, of wh why people don't yeah. want micromanaging of our culture. Yeah, but then the question is, do we want to leave over bananas? And I think like well, there's a lot of other factors. It's not the bananas but, that caused it, right? But the thing is, the UK, as part of the European Union, has sovereignty over like its income taxes, all of its um, laws, as long as they don't conflict with the um, UN Declaration of Human Rights, which was first invented by the UK, mm -hmm. um, has control over um, yeah all of its internal um, legislation. It can, it can go to war if it wants, um, um, and it did. So the loss of sovereignty seems pretty mild from my perspective, and I feel like I feel like they focus on these examples, which is like okay, maybe like let's say yeah, it's okay, it's a cost. We would like to be able, like maybe it would be better if Britain could make decision over bananas. Maybe the bananas was the bad call. Well, it definitely doesn't seem like but a universal seems... reaction. I mean, the, the, there's a, a large percentage of the people in England that are very upset about Brexit. You know, oh, yeah. it's, it's, no. a, it's a really interesting sort of a divide between people. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I find fascinating is that we would make, and I think this in general, I think this with elections as well, because um, I studied a bunch of voting theory while doing my PhD. And we make these momentous decisions as a country where we get everyone in the population to try and go to a specific place mm. and then get the smallest possible information out of them that you can, which is just a single tick, like yes or no. Whereas there's so much more you could be doing. So right. in one case with a referendum, um, rather than just at a particular date, 
where the turnout is affected by things like the weather. Um, it's affected by, you know, what happened in the week before. Um, instead, you just have three referenda. And given the momentumness, momentousness of the decision, spending more money on, like, actually getting the accurate views of the people um, is super important. So instead, yeah, you have three over the period of six months and choose the best, um, you know, be best out of three, basically. Well, there's so that, a, would, is, that would be like a more accurate, accurate representation of what people think over time. Sure, but isn't there then, also a gigantic issue with people not being informed about what they're voting on? You don't have to be informed yeah. about what you're voting on. You certainly don't have to be accurate about what you're... You could easily be misled, yeah. and the actual hard, provable facts could be completely outside of your grasp, and yet you still make a big decision. Yeah, I wondered before about having a... Um, a test? A test, yeah, you go yeah. and like, but like really, really basic. Um, I think it would still, there's this question of just why do we care about democracy? What's the point? Um, why do Who we Who questions that? Oh, it seems like a really important thing. Oh, yeah, political philosophers talk about this all the time. So they kind of agree, like, democracy seems good. Other forms of government that we know so far seem terrible, more, seem ter terrible or worse. But why? Why is democracy good? Is it just that democracy gives us this way to boot out dictators. And the risk of a single person taking power is just really, really bad. And so we just need some mechanism to get rid of that. Is it that it's intrinsically valuable? Is it that um, people just have a right to have equal representation? And that's just this fundamental thing. Or is it justified on just in terms of the consequences? Is it because if everybody's able to contribute, then um, people will make better decisions. I don't ever necessarily think it's an either or. I think there's also that people like to feel like they play a part. Like mm -hmm. they don't want to feel like they're being ruled over by mm -hmm. some monarch. They want to feel like they have some sort of a play yeah. in their decision making. It's also what one of the gross things about Trump winning in this country is how many people gloated. Mm -hmm. You know, how many people gloat upon victory that their side won. And mm -hmm. then you're dealing with this whole team mentality that yeah, people yeah. adopt when it comes to so any sort of an issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is... Including yeah. Brexit, right? Yeah, no, in general, this is one of the things I'm really worried about with um, uh, um, is increasing levels of partisanship. This yeah. is just this really robust phenomenon that we're seeing. Um, and it's really worrying because it means that we're just undermining any chance of people changing their mind. Like, Trump won. Like, people say, well, it was a Comey, et cetera. But, like, the vast majority of Trump's votes were, and similarly for Hillary's votes, were from people who just always vote Republican or always yeah. vote Democrat. Well, not necessarily, just, because the, the, Trump won by so many votes that a good percentage of them had to have voted for Obama, just statistically. Oh, um, but I'm still thinking um, of Trump's votes, what proportion of people have only ever voted Republican? It's a good question. And I would, like, definitely bet greater than 80 percent. Really? Probably bet greater than 90 percent. Yeah, that's like, I mean, if you look at the polls, like, it's always the in terms of expected um, number of votes. Like, oh, it's only 46% in favor of Trump. Well, there's also the issue that the independents in the swing states, whether it's Gary Johnson or whether it's Jill Stein, those independents, the amount of votes that they got mm -hmm. would have swung it the other way towards Hillary. Yeah, I remember looking into this for Jill Stein in particular, and actually it was the case, she would have won the popular vote by even more but in none of the swing states did she get enough of a percentage. Not just Jill Stein, but Gary Johnson as well. Yeah, though Gary Johnson, it seemed to me, um, was split almost evenly between Trump and Hillary. Right. So. But this is an interesting case. So 
the thing that people yeah don't think about so much is like I think the process we call this like a democracy, but like one single um, like checkbox every four years it's like the smallest amount of information you can be getting yeah. from people, and it's susceptible to all sorts of different things. So supposing. And this happens on both sides. So supposing Jill Stein became, you know, really, um, uh, really popular, took 10% of the vote. She would have just killed Hillary. Like, right. absolutely. Or supposing that um, Evan McMullen, is that his name? Who's anyway, that? Yeah, he was a Republican independent. Okay. Did well in Utah. But anyway, supposing that a um, far-right candidate does really well, again, takes all of the votes away from Trump. Um, the fact that that's possible shows that like first past the post the voting system is a very bad voting system yeah. it's not accurately representing the will of the people um and we could do so much better than it would mean that um like as a democratic process you'd be much closer to representing what people actually um believe or feel about things because right now it means that yeah you can be influenced by stuff like how much Support does a third party get? Well, that's a terrible system. It's a terrible system. It lasts too long. The decisions last for four years. This person gets locked into position unless you impeach them and then remove them from office. Yeah, They're yeah. stuck. It sucks. I wish I could talk about it more, but I can't. Yeah. I got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah, no worries. But uh, this, that's the least interesting thing we talked about today. <laughs> but the um, AI and all the other stuff is just fascinating stuff. Um, if people want to know more about your uh, effective altruism movement and more about you, where should they go? They should go to effectivealtruism.org. Um, that's got tons of information about effective altruism. If you want to, if there's one takeaway that you really want to do, you think, wow, actually, this was kind of cool. I do want to make more of a difference. We've just launched a set of funds. So it just means you can donate within one of these core areas of global development, animal welfare, or preservation of the long-run future against global catastrophic risks. You can just donate and have it ensure that it will go to the very most effective nonprofits. 0% overhead, depending on how you donate. And um, like we don't take any money along the way. And just means that, yeah super easy to donate, donate as effectively as possible. All right. Beautiful. Thank you, Will. Appreciate cool. it, man. It was Thanks fun talking so much. to you. Really fun. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, Jim Norton. See ya. That was fun, man. Cool. No, that was great. <laughs>